Well, we were supposed to be starting with uh, <laughs> um, with the Zion uh, Trinity, but oh well, we'll just get started and try it again a little later. We are so excited to have Adia T- uh, Tamar Whitaker in the studio to talk about um, the uh, Ashe Dance Theater Collective's West Coast premiere of Have No, that's K in parentheses, N-O apostrophe, and then W, Have No Fear, a Bluesico, and that's going to be October 17th through 19th. And Adia um, uh, Tamar Whitaker is artistic director of this 19-year-old Brooklyn-based dance theater ensemble, Ashe Dance Theater Collective, and it's performed contemporary dance, vernacular movement, Afro-Haitian and Haitian dance in the United States and abroad for 17 years. Like, oh, my goodness, where did the time fly, right, Adia? Right. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> wow, like amazing. You're getting ready to have your 20th anniversary next year. Like, wow. Awesome, I know. Awesome. It's been a long time. It's been a long mm-hmm. time of doing this work. Yeah, and you've been traveling all throughout the world, you know, in the uh, African diaspora and elsewhere, Haiti or Haiti, Cuba, France, Germany, Spain, the Netherlands, Belgium, Ghana, Jamaica, and Trinidad. And when you're there, um, uh, you both study and teach dance. And you received your MFA in dance from Hollins University, which is in Virginia. Yeah, I just completed that. I just completed Congratulations. that. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you very much. That was a lot of hard work, but I made it through. Yeah. I'm not really an <laughs> academic type of uh, person, but, you know, mm-hmm. I just had to get my freedom papers, some more freedom papers. I totally understand. Yeah, yeah. And Virginia, you know, um, sort of honoring the 400th anniversary of of the Commonwealth, uh, you know, entrance into, um, you know, this particular hemisphere as uh, a, a place that had, African people, you know, as possessions. Um, so that was in August. And so where's Hollins in relationship to um, oh, uh, Hampton? I, you know, I don't know where it is in relationship to Hampton, but H- Hollins was an old plantation. So it's what? just a deep, yeah, it was an old plantation. And so the people, the descendants of the Africans that lived on that plantation and and worked as enslaved Africans still live on the land and are the groundskeepers and they work in the cafeteria and you can visit this like the graveyard of a family so I think it's the Locke family they have their mm-hmm. graves in one place and then they have the graves of their enslaved Africans there as well so Hollands was deep I could I didn't get over to the graveyards because it was just such such a journey for me, but um, mm-hmm. just being on the land where Africans were enslaved and everybody knows it, and then I guess it turned into a spa at some point, and then after mm-hmm. that, since Holland is a un- women's university, there were mm-hmm. the young women that attended there were allowed to have a young black woman as their kind of helper to help mm-hmm. them, I don't know, carry their books or just, I don't know, just basically work for them. So that's kind mm-hmm. of an interesting kind of strangeness that was also going 
on there, and it also is on indigenous land. We have to also remember mm. that before all mm-hmm. of our ancestors got there, it was indigenous land. So there's a lot of strong, like, psychic and spiritual energy just on the campus of Hollins because it's really old, and in the middle of the campus there's a big – you know, like a big circle with a cross in the middle. So for me, it's a Dikenga. It's a big Congolese, you know, cosmogram in the middle yeah. of the quad with four houses on each side. So there's lots of energy there. And also when I was, I uh, one of the parts of, big parts of Have No Fear, um, I refer to Margaret Wise Brown's book, Good Night Moon, the children's book. And so yeah. there was this big ballroom on campus that had this big green carpet. And every time I'd go in the room, I'd be like, in the great green room, there was a telephone. And I'd get all excited, but there wasn't a whole lot of parents there. So it didn't really mean as much to my cohort as it did to me. But every time I would go in that room, I would just, like, even under my breath, I would recite this, in the great green room, there was a telephone. And one day I went to the student union and I saw her book in the student union. And I'm like, oh, my God, this book has been a part of my life since I've had children. I've had to read it for eight years. I memorized it. And I was like, do you have children's books on campus? And they said, no, we just have her book because she's an alumni. And so Mm. I went back and I looked at some more information to find out if she had been in the room that I would mm-hmm. go into and have this urge to say lines from her book. And it turned out that at the time she went to school there, it was a cafeteria. So she was absolutely in that space. So mm-hmm. that's one of the, the like kind of connective tissues that, that I was like, okay, let me figure out why this dead white woman is talking to me because mm-hmm. she's an ancestor as well. And I need to figure out what she, what her, what her connection to my work is because Every time I'd go in that space, I'd, I'd say those lines, and then when it was time to pick our the place we would perform for our thesis, I was like, I don't want to do it in the theater. I need to do it in that ballroom because it was like a gazebo ceiling, a big, shiny chandelier, and I don't even know if my ancestors would have been allowed in that space except to be in service of all the very, very dead white people on the walls because the whole space was surrounded by pictures of the Locke family, all these white elders and scholars. So I'm mm-hmm. sure that my family would not have been allowed in that room at all if it were not in service. Um, so I was like, well, because I know that we probably weren't allowed in this room, I'm about to do this right here underneath your shiny <laughs> crystal chandelier on your green carpet in front of all, and it gave such a, a, a backdrop to the choreography and the singing and what we were doing. Cause you know, we've got drums up there. We were barefoot. We had on frocks, but it wasn't, it was definitely not what we would have been able to do between the 15th and the 19th, 18th century, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> wow. This is so amazing. Yeah. Wow. Place is everything, isn't it? Right. Right. It totally yeah, is. And yeah. I think that, you know, like I was getting a lot of people were like, you know, with with us performing at ODC, it's a mm-hmm. completely, you know, this piece or these, you know, everything that we're going to present was really, I got to a place in performing in the concert stage where I was like, you know, I, it wasn't enough for me anymore. And I'm like, you know, the people that inspire most of the work that a lot of artists do don't get to see it, right? Maybe they can't afford to come to the show. Maybe they have so many life things that are keeping them from the theater. So really this piece was designed 
as a model of like performance art protest and action because I was like, you know, it's fine to do it in the theater, but theater is a very sanctioned space. And I'm interested in the spaces where we don't have permission. Like Rosa Parks didn't ask for permission. She just said, no, you know, Mm -hmm. you don't, you don't ask permission for the revolution to happen or for resistance to happen. And so I was like, you know, I feel like we're in a time where there's so much performing of the progressive and of the revolution and of resistance, but people are not really willing to be uncomfortable or to put their lives on the line. And the United States is one of the only places where we can at this time, maybe not in a couple of weeks or in a month, I have an opportunity to present a work like this and not be murdered. And that, you know, I'm very, I'm very present with the privilege that I have to be able to present this work, whether it's on the street or whether it's in a theater. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Um, I'm going to run, keep on running through your, your bio. And then I want us to talk more about, about what you call um, this work, an undoing spell to untie all the knots that choke the future from natural disasters and systemic oppression to forced migration. It's a work of both healing and resistance. And um, notice that um, you uh, you came through, you know, that wonderful institution. Uh, I don't know what it's looking like now in, in San Francisco, San Francisco State University, but you were probably there when all those wonderful um, – Elder women, African women teachers were there, and I want to pour an ashe to um to Dr. Uh, Nasisi Kayu, who who right. made her transition. Mm-hmm. Ashe, yeah. yeah. Yep, those those were the ones that came and got me. Not um, mm-hmm. Dr. Nasisi Kayu was my teacher. Dr. Bird is my teacher. Alicia mm-hmm. Pierce is my teacher. Malanga Costa Lord mm-hmm. is my teacher. Carlos Antuno nice. is my teacher. Perquiso mm-hmm. is my teacher. Um, so many teachers. Miss Blanche Brown is my teacher. Mm-hmm. Michelle Martin is my teacher. Portia Jefferson is my teacher. All of them. They all they all brought me into being who I think I am right now. And um, I didn't really know. You know, I didn't know. I was a regular Frisco, San Francisco youth I didn't know anything about no conscious nothing and no drums I just went to San Francisco State because I was in Upward Bound and I got that's the college I got into so Mm -hmm. when I met all these people they really came and got me it wasn't I was like no I'm gonna you know be a journalism major or something and they were like no 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 you need to come on over here and I was like no I'm not gonna be able to survive as a dancer I don't want to be uh and I had all these notions about like what an artist, you know, like what it is to be an artist and how I would just be struggling and hungry. And even though that happens sometimes, I just, you know, I always have to thank them for pushing me and <laughs> chasing me down and being like, no, 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 you come over here. <laughs> oh, wow, that is so awesome. So so tell us about tell us about the work um, because there, there are a lot, of, a lot of parts to it. And also I want to mention that um, – that you um you were part of uh the the uh what is it the professional you got a professional division US independent studies program something or another at Ailey School Oh yeah uh, I just I just went, that's how I came to New York is I I got done at San mm-hmm. Francisco State in 2000 and then when I was coming I was didn't know what I was going to do so 
I bought a ticket to Cuba because I was like, let me just go and see if I'm just going to travel the world and study dance. Which I, you know, I ended up doing it anyway, but I, I just didn't know what I was going to do. And, like, at the last minute, I think my mom got tickets to see um, Ailey at the Zeller Block and Ron mm-hmm. Brown did Grace in that show. So ah. The LA company was performing, and Ron Brown, I did Grace, and I had never seen anything like it. And so because I saw Grace, I decided mm-hmm. I was going to audition for the LA school the next day because I wasn't going to. I had auditioned the year before, and I didn't get in. And so I was like, mm, I, you know, maybe I'll go see the show. So I went to see the show, and at the last minute, I was like, I'm going to audition. I went to Berkeley, I auditioned, and then I got into the professional division independent study program. And then, so that was June, and then I was in New York in September. Oh, wow. And then I started performing <laughs> in December. Oh, my. And I was, wow. You know, yeah, it was quick. It was a quick little, this is your destiny, you know, moment. Yeah, yeah. It seems like you, you get those kind of calls. Like, they're, you know, you don't have to wander around. It's like... This is what we want you to do, the ancestors are telling yeah. Right. Yeah, that's nice. You know, sometimes yeah, you have to wander nice. around for a bit. It's good when you get it more direct, right? <laughs> and you listen. Uh, yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's always been that way, though. So I guess, yeah, I guess mm-hmm. that is a blessing. It is a blessing, yes. Absolutely. <laughs> mhm. Yeah. So so tell us more about um, this wonderful Have No Fear, a Bluesicle, and, and your, you know, your dance theater collective and you know all the different pieces that are you're pulling together that people won't know like wow this was a real big thing um you know both sides yeah, of the, I, the country and you know all these yeah, different so creative right. minds that are coming together and you know the multiple genres you know there's dance there's live music um yeah, yeah. talk to us about it so um <clears throat> it began with um, I start. I choreographed the first section of Have No Fear. So Have No Fear, a bluesical, is composed of three parts. The first part is called A Break for the Five. I choreographed, I started to choreograph A Break for the Five, I'd say in like 2007, for a show called Native Tongue that happened at OBC. The show was presented by Jacinta Vlock. And so it was really her show, but she she wanted me to do work in it, or she asked me to do work in it, and I said yes. And originally, it was kind of an idea. I knew that, just from my personal experiences, that um, my friends, a lot of the black folks in Frisco were leaving. They were going back down south um, when I was in San Francisco. And there was a point where I wanted to come back to San Francisco. My friends were like, don't come back here. Something like new and kind of dangerous and strange is happening. And I was like, no, no, I'm going to come home. And they were like, no, no, don't come back because you're going to get caught up in it. And I was like, I don't understand but, you know, I think they were describing, like, the prison industrial complex had gone from something that we were marching in the street about and, like, something that was over there that we were, like, standing up for, and it became, like, very personal and started to affect my family, their families, people we know. Um, and so it became kind of like if you stay in San Francisco, you kind of have a couple fates. You'll either uh, get addicted to drugs or the cops will kill you or um, you, you know, turned out by just street life. Um, and so it was really hard. They were just like, it's really hard for black folks. So a lot of people are going down south. So a lot of people are moving out. And that's when gentrification really started to pop. 
And so my friends were like, just don't come home. There's just no, there's just not opportunities for here for us like that anymore. And so when I was, when I started to make work, you know, you can't make the same work that is relevant out here in the East Coast to what's happening in the Bay because the Bay is like a whole nother thing. So although mm-hmm. I can do the work that ha- is happening out here, there's just way more diversity in the African diaspora. So the the things that we are talking about or talk about in the Bay, it just, there's different issues you need to address when you're there because they're just different places with different populations and people from different places, you know. And so mm-hmm. I decided I was going to do a break for the five, and I wanted to do um, a rah-rah for the, like, disappearing population of African Americans and just people of color in San Francisco. And so that's mm-hmm. how it started. So I looked at the, the model of a Haitian rah-rah and how it was used or is used as a form of political protest, but then also looking using some of the, like, voodoo of it, like the sequins to reflect the negative energy away um, and also kind of creating this inner diasporic syncretization between not only um, uh, visual like aesthetics from Haitian folklore, but also from uh, folklore that comes from Trinidad and Tobago and just kind of making this place where the diaspora meets and decides that um, we're all cousins and we're all Africans and we share a lot of, even though our specific situations are very different we still are kind of um, speaking up against the same forces that seek to oppress us and silence us um, and take our freedoms away. And so that's how Break for the Five happened. And then it grew a little bit bigger when Mark Bamucci Joseph brought us to the Bay Area to perform in the Living Word Festival, I believe in like 2010, nine. Ten, we did it twice. Okay. We did it like two thousand, maybe two thousand eight, and then two thousand ten, and so it grew into mm-hmm. something bigger, um, and it just kept growing and growing. And I feel like my pieces, all the pieces that I create, are like children. And you know, people, you know, in the society we live in, people want you to produce all these things really quickly and make pieces, make works, and what are you doing next? And I feel like that's one thing that I've really resisted is I've been like, you know what, I'm gonna take time to grow this work to its full realization and potential and really see what it is. And if it takes me 20 years to do that, then I'm going to do that. And so this is the piece where I feel like I really dug my heels in and it was like, no, I'm not just going to keep making things to make things. I'm going to make mm-hmm. things that have, that have relevance and are poignant. And so um, that's how a break for the five happened. That's the first section. The other part of a break for the five is that I'm the first, female in my family on my mother's side to not participate in the quilting tradition um, in our Mm -hmm. family and my family's from South Carolina and so that's a big deal Um, that was a big deal in our family and so for me because I didn't grow up in South Carolina because I just visited and I grew up in the Bay I always felt like a really strong connection to my family but that you know I'm always like the diversified cousin or the kind of outsider but the 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 how do you say the tradition the tradition of the Baptist Church although I'm not Christian at all it is very strong in me because my grandfather Reverend C J Whitaker was a Baptist minister um, and he was responsible for forming the first like Democratic Party in Greenville South Carolina so he was also an activist so that runs strong in that side of my family and so I wanted to participate in that quilting tradition with my mama's people because I was like you know I feel like they speak to me in dreams and they give me all this 
kind of um, inspiration in the work that I create. And so I wanted to be able to speak to them further. And so in creating a break for the five, this is my like, this, these are my patches for my familial quilt or my ancestral quilt. This is like my telephone to my ancestors on that side of my family. Mm-hmm. Um, and then after I came, after I, I've been working on the break for the five, we performed it a bunch of times. It kept growing and changing. Um, and then in 2011, after I was in the Bay area, um, for quite some time presenting work at Counterpost, um, I mm-hmm. came pregnant with my daughter <laughs> And so my daughter was born on 9-11-11. She was born during Occupy Wall Street. And I remember people calling me like, it's going down. You need to come out here. And I was like, I just had a baby at my house. Like, I've been in labor for four days. I can't come outside. And so my um, that kind of put me in a moment of like, okay, well, I can no longer be a lieutenant in the same way in terms of actions. Like, I can't go outside right now. I might not be able to go outside all the time, so how can I participate in the things that are happening and the things that I still very much believe in and support without being on the front lines? And so that's when I think Have No Fear started to bubble. At that time, like a little bit after my my daughter was born, after she was born, uh, I still was performing a break for the five, and I was trying to figure out, like, okay, how do I do this? Because I can't, I mean, I can go outside with my baby, but when we get pepper sprayed, that's just, and then my family's gonna like jump on me because I had a baby outside, in mm-hmm. in some kind of you know whatever. So I was I was really kind of in a place of stuckness, and I think what pushed it through is then I became pregnant with my son in 2014, and I was doing a residency in Trinidad, and um, while I was in Trinidad or while we were in Tobago, uh, the Black Lives Matter movement started. So. Although we all knew, know that these things were happening already, have always been happening, it just became way more highly publicized. And I was like, yo, like, I got to go back to the United States, and I'm pregnant with this little boy. Like, it's all bad. So, so yeah, so that's what I was like, how am I going to teach my children to protect themselves? Like, this is crazy. Like, I don't know. Like, this is, like, now it's a state of emergency. And I had had pieces that people had kind of warned me about that I had done, like, little singing and dancing pieces that then later became a part of Have No Fear that that my friends that were folklorists was like, you know, you got to be careful, like singing and dancing and all that because, you know, you're talking about people and they might come get you. And I'm like, well, you know, Nina Simone did it. James Baldwin did it. Bob Marley did it. James Brown did it. Like, if they did it, like, shouldn't we be doing it too? Like, didn't they show us a way to do it? And so mm-hmm. – I think I was building the work inside of other works for a very long time, but I think I was, I was maybe a little scared to put it all together into, I knew it was something, but I just didn't want to put it all in one piece because I knew if I did it like little by little, I could see how people would react to it. And they had some strong Uh reactions, even though they were just sections of pieces. And so when I got back to Brooklyn, um, there was, you know, the gentrification that's happening and the dislocation, all the things that are happening in the Bay Area are beginning to still beginning to happen in Brooklyn. It hasn't happened in the Bay out here as severely as it's happened in the Bay. But um, there was some filmmakers that wanted to collaborate with some neighborhood artists, and they were doing a fellowship for this organization called Union Docs. And so we were connected through one of the dancers in my company, 
and um they were they are they were three white women that lived like in the neighborhood so they were gentrifiers and technically I'm a gentrifier too because I'm not from here I'm not from Brooklyn but I moved here so but my situation is a little bit different and so um, we started to work together, and for us, I mean, I took it to Ashe, you know, because Ashe, a long time ago, transformed from, like, just being a body of dancers and performers on stage to, like, a, a nation of mamas and babas and children and people that are all really taking care of each other, kind of like how folks did during the Great Migration when you would move from your various parts of the South and you would come up to the city, and even though you wouldn't have your blood family close, you would make your... Oh, that's in the, in the spirit of the Great Migration. We're, we kind of did the same thing. And so I took it to mm-hmm. them, and I was like, you know, these are these three white women that want to do this film on us, but, you know, white folks stay making money off black suffering. So I was like, I don't know if we should do it. What do you guys think? And so they decided, they said, okay, yes, we will do it, but if anybody starts getting, like, major bread off it or anything, then we got to pump the brakes and we got to redo contracts and all this stuff. So Ashe agreed to do it, and we began the process. And for me, it was really like, okay, the new neighbors are here. They're not going anywhere. So instead of, like, just beasting out on the new neighbors, let's see what – let me try to be a human being. Let's share this lineage of being humans on the planet, and let's try to see what working together looks like. So we didn't have a whole lot of bumps and scrapes because, like I said, they're filmmakers. I'm a choreographer. We we share the lineage of art. So that really united us. You know, there was there was definitely cultural scrapes. And in the film, you know, there's things like I look like I'm a single mother when I have an amazing partner and I love him and he loves me, but it looks like I'm a single mother. And, you know, there's little things where I'm like, okay, you guys made some editing choices that were interesting. But I love them. They're wonderful people. And I guess they took this film all over the world. It won awards. And I, in the meantime, I just started going and getting my MFA and just living life and being a mama and being a choreographer, doing all the things I do. And then, like, a year later, it just had – the film had had a whole life. Like, when I was in Europe, I guess, I was in Germany, and then the film was in Poland, and the Polish people wanted me to come to Germany. It was a, I was like, really? I was just reading books. Like, I didn't know <laughs> that all these things were happening. And so that's how the second section of Have No Fear started, right? Because it, it, in the film, it's called Have No Fear. So after right. they made the film Have No Fear, then I was like, Okay, I, I think that's what this piece, this next section of this piece is called. And so when okay. I then I started to go into my thesis, and that's when it really took shape. Where I decided, okay, I'm gonna we're gonna hit all these different ideas that really keep us silenced. And I really wanted to look at the idea if I I am a, an African American woman that has always grown up with fear. I've raised I've been raised in fear because. That's probably how your parents raise you. You just know not to act a fool because you're afraid either something's going to happen. You're always afraid something's going to happen or there's a consequence, you know, like a, such a thing. So mm-hmm. I was like, well, what if, what would it be if I really addressed white Jesus and how the iconography of white Jesus has negatively affected people of color across the planet? What would it be if I really wrote Aunt Jemima's quitting speech and I, you know, as a salute to, like, Aunt Jemima as the survival masquerade and, like, 
talked about how my grandma scrubs your toilets and irons your curtains so that I don't have to, so that everyone is clear about who we are. And, like, what if I taught my children rhymes, nursery rhymes, that would stick in their heads so if they ever got in a situation where they were faced with police officers that didn't have their best intentions in mind, they would have this soundtrack playing in their heads so they would know their next steps and they wouldn't flinch or put their hands in their pockets so that they got hurt. Mm -hmm. You know, so there was, there were several, there were several motives for have no fear the bluesical. And one, the most important one was to keep my children alive and to keep all of our children, especially in Ashe, because between now, between us now, there's about 13 children and most of Mm. them are boys. And so I was thinking about, our boys and how we were going to teach them, you know, whatever we could, because, you know, whatever can happen. It doesn't mean like they have this song in their head and they won't get hurt, but it, it may give them a very clear soundtrack as to their options. Um, mm-hmm. I was also like looking at the idea of ritual dance theater and <clears throat> the power of prayer, because in African tradition, my elders always teach us that you have to be really specific in your prayers and that the power of word is very strong. And so the the songs that go with the pieces um, are very intentional and they're clear. You know, it's not, I've done so much work where so much of the, the music I've created is like coded and it's proverb and it's double entendre. And you see this in the break for the five, but in Have No Fear, it's really it's it just says what it is and it does what it does. It wasn't about like creating the most intricate choreography and abstracting things so far that people couldn't identify what they were because I wanna get Auntie Such and Such out of the laundry mat to come and see what I'm talking about, to see if she'll come to the courthouse with me and hold a sign. Mm-hmm. I'm not trying to i I'm not trying to get, you know, the the this that foundation donor to see like oh that I that I've studied and that I've I have this certain level of technique it's really about people being together in a room in a space and trying to figure out and shifting it's not even offering an answer it's really like okay if we get together in a space and we shift then something else might shift because if you look at labor if you look at when a person is in labor, like you really hope and pray that at the end of the labor that you have a child, that you have a person. But some people don't have that outcome. But whatever, you, whatever the outcome is of labor, you still shifted, you still changed, it, changed, and you still grew. And so that's, that's what I think that I'm trying to do, especially when it comes to this time in history that we're in. Nobody really knows what to do because all of these constructs of whiteness and blackness and other and all of these different things, we were born into them. And so we can we can have all of our decolonizing, our imagination, all of these different things. But in the end, we're all trying to figure out, like, what actually to do to shift the, the like, foundations of white supremacy, patriarchy, and capitalism that keep us all stuck. Because we we live here, so we all support it. We're all a part of it, but nobody mm. really knows what we can do. And so my idea is real simple. It's like if we come together in a space and we actually shift our bodies in a space, then maybe that will cause some shift. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Um, well, we're kind of out of time, 
But I wanted to um, give you an opportunity um, in closing to um, maybe talk about, um, maybe give the names of of the members of Ashe. And I know you're going to have um, a special um, Oakland-based musician who also yeah. serves as the music director. Um, and I don't want to mess up um, his name, so that's why I'm not <laughs> saying it. Unless you do it. So, yes, I wonder if you could give give the give the names of of you know the other members of of Ashe. So this process has been quite challenging because the cla- the ca- cast is split on the west coast from um, even though Guy DeShalis is from New York and was mm-hmm. the artistic director of Ashe Dance Theater Collective for many many years. He moved to the Bay Area, and so he is the the fiddler in the work and he is the musical director of the work. We also have the extraordinary voices of Tossie Long and Zakia Shapeshifter Harris. They are just like gorgeous singers and amazing artists in their own right. Like aside from me, they have their own things going on and you should check them out. Um, mm-hmm. The other drummers we have working with us are Pablo Soto Campo Amor, and he is an extraordinary visual artist as well. And then we have Eliyahu Salam. Um, and so those are the Bay Area kind of Ashe folks. I would also put uh, Andrew, he's a lighting designer, and he has been with us since Counter Pulse. So I would definitely throw him a, like a shout out to him as a dope lighting designer. Um, from the East Coast, uh, we have uh, Alexandra Jean-Joseph. We have Brian Polite. We have Kendra Ross, Aaron Holmes. Um, ay, ay, ay. Oh, no. Kendra Holmes. Tanisha Newland. Um, I think that's everybody. Yeah, I think that's everybody. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Those are all, right. Yeah, those are all the Ashe East and West folks. Okay, and um, the filmmakers again? Oh, um, I'm sorry, Imani and Zinga. That's the other one, Imani and Zinga. Oh. And Stephanie okay. Bostos. What am I doing? Bay Area, Stephanie Bostos. She's also in it. I'm so sorry, Stephanie Bostos. is amazing. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Okay. Mm-hmm. And this says the, the project's filmmakers include um, Beata. Beata Kalinska. Uh, mm-hmm. Tracy Williams, who is also she's also working with us, like art direction, like helping us um, do some of our social media stuff, um, mm-hmm. and Sarah Jacobson, um, and everything really has been brought together as well by an organization called Purpose Productions, um, ran by Austin Edwards, and um, our production manager is Marisol Ibarra. So I think that's everybody. <laughs> right. Um so it's a whole village and, of people. Nice, nice. And again we're speaking to Adia Tamar Whitaker, um, about Ashe Dance Theater Collective, uh, having uh its West Coast premiere of Have No Fear a Bluesico again October seventeenth through nineteenth, um, Thursday through Saturday, that's next week, eight PM and uh that's at ODC, at ODC. and you can go to ODC um, dot dance forward slash bluesico and ODC is located in San Francisco and I'm looking for an address. Um, oh, here it is, three one five three Seventeenth Street, and uh, tickets are fifteen to thirty dollars. And um, um, I think is that everything? Um, 
Yeah. Do you have a website? I do. It's ashedance.com, A-S-E-D-A-N-C-E.com. Okay. Super, super. All righty. Oh, I know what I was looking for. There's going to be a talk on next Friday, um, October 18th at 630 at ODC. Uh, ODC is going to host you in a conversation, a public talk, presented in partnership with the Institute for Curatorial Practice and Performance based at Wesleyan University. So I think that part is free to the public. So folks will probably come out and hear you, you know, sort of expound on, on the concept, you know, you know, with that that MFA, you got the language too, right? Uh-huh. Oh, <laughs> Maybe you have MFA. copies of your dissertation for us to be able to take home. Um. Uh-huh. <laughs> All righty, oh, well, super. MFA. Yeah, well, look forward to well, um, thank you so much. Uh, thank to seeing you, so much you next for week. Me. Oh, you're quite thank welcome. You so so funny. Um, yeah, uh, you were talking about Counterpulse San Francisco and just. Curtis uh, Gravity uh, is presenting his um, second weekend of Invisible um, this weekend at, at Counterpost. I just thought that was kind of cool that, you know, sort wow. of you all are like crossing, you know, each other um, in the um, uh, in this conversation. So if you want to oh, wow. say hi to Jess, he's on the air now with uh, a couple of other choreographers, Sherwood. Uh, Adia. Ken. Oh, Sherwood, what's up? Hi. <laughs> and Gabriel Christian. Hi there. Hi everybody. I'm so sorry. That was very loud. <laughs> I was, was so thrilled loud. to hear Adia, to the, the master who was already a master before the MFA, I have to say. Aw, <laughs> thanks. Thanks. Okay, yeah. so take care, everyone. All right, safe travels. See you later. Bye. Good luck. Bye. <laughs> uh, thank you all so much for your patience. Um, I'm glad glad you were able to, to say hey, uh, Sherwood. I'm glad you're also able to join us because I know you're going to be traveling in a minute um, to your next hey, destination. Wanda. Hey, yeah, and and thank you so much, uh, Jess, um, for you know being available, Jess Curtis, to talk about you know your um, your. Uh, your program, you know, this year, this 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 season, oh. and uh, yeah, and I remember last year we had an opportunity to talk about gravity. I just love gravity; like it's so heavy, right? And we got people without electricity, <laughs> right? As we speak, like what? Mm-hmm. What? I mean, the people with money without electricity, like not the poor people that have been living without electricity on the streets for a minute, like they know how to survive, but the folks, like, wow, isn't that crazy? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, turning off really the electricity is. like for five days maybe like uh, yeah. So yeah. we're looking at the maps. Who's going next? Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, gravity presents invisible. How do you experience a performance by seeing it? What if that's not possible? So I'm trying to think. Should I run through all of your bios and then we could talk about invisible? How sh- you think that will work good? I mean, should we do it that way? Your call. Oh, could you tell us we're what, really, what invisible? We're happy to be oh. here. Okay. At well, your service. Maybe. So, Jess, why don't you tell us? I'll read your bio, Jess, and you tell us what um, 
Invisible is, and then I'll read Gabriel Christian and Sherwood, and Sherwood, we'll let you talk a lot because we know you might have to slip out. So Jess Curtis is an award-winning choreographer and performer committed to an art-making practice informed by experimentation, innovation, critical discourse, and social relevance. He has created and performed multidisciplinary works throughout the United States and Europe, with the radical San Francisco performance groups Contraband and Core, and the experimental French circus company Cahen Caja. Yes. Did I say it right? Great okay. In 2000, yes. he founded his transcontinental performance company, Jess Curtis Gravity. And that's a forward slash there after Curtis. Mm-hmm. Uh, Curtis is active as a researcher and performance. And excuse me, researcher, writer, teacher, advocate, and community organizer in the fields of contemporary dance and performance. He holds an MFA in choreography and a PhD in performance studies from the University of California at Davis. So, so with introduction um, to um, you know what we're going to be talking about in, in your first weekend. This is your second weekend. Tell us, uh, Jess, about uh, Invisible. In in parentheses. And then visible. Yeah, well, um, invisible is a project we've been working on for almost two years now, or depending on sort of what which parts of our early experiments you count. Um, but this crew has actually been. We made a, a piece, uh, a sort of research piece in 2017. But the work really comes out of a lot of um, some of my experience um, as I've been collaborating with artists in the UK, particularly with Claire Cunningham. Um, and I've had the opportunity over the last few years to see a, um, what a, a number of productions and then to, to build into my own production what are called access accommodations um, for people with visual impairments, as well as for deaf folk too. But um, I got really interested um, in uh, in practices that allow people um, who with low vision or people who are blind to be able to experience dance performance. And, um, you know, I've grown up as a dancer and throughout my career experiencing dances from the inside. And I know how exciting a dance can be um, beyond just what you see from, from the audience. So, um, with with my last project with Claire, which was called The Way You Look at Me Tonight, um, we placed the audience on stage and we did we used a number of these practices that come out of making the work accessible to actually um, in, inspire audiences to feel the work in different ways, not just to sit back at the back of the auditorium and look at people jumping around on the other side of the room, but to really be in the middle of it. And that was uh, really successful and exciting, the way that Claire and I used that in that piece. And uh, But I felt like there was way more that we could do, um, and that was super interesting to me. So I invited Sherwood and Gabriel and um, four other dancers, two of them from Berlin and two more from here from the Bay Area. And we've been working for the last year and a half, um, building up and researching uh, uh, just different ways of utilizing all of the senses in performance. So we've been, uh, we're, yeah, that's kind of the genesis of the work. And I think I'm, I'm really proud of it. We've, we've run it for 
we premiered it this summer in Berlin, and then we just uh, opened it last weekend in Counterpulse, and we've gotten really great responses from folks and are really looking forward to this next weekend. Oh, awesome, awesome. Congratulations. Yeah. So, Gabriel, um, Christian is a multidisciplinary artist bred in New York City and baking in Oakland, California. I hope that you have electricity still, Gabriel. Are you on that list or no? I do, yeah. I have, I know, actually, I'm totally safe from the list. I've been lucky. Oh, yeah. good. Yeah, me too. I'm like, oh, you know, you know, sort of like, yeah, I'm in the, I'm, well, I'm in Alameda, but the people that are in the flats, like, right, like, we're good. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So Gabriel's work um, uh, metabolizes the vernaculars with black b l a q diaspora uh, futurity Afro vivalism. You can skip the next word. Vivalism a little bit. Hard for the radio. Oh. Yes, it's okay. You can skip the next word. Okay. Um, through <laughs> body-based live performance and poetics. Moreover, I should have had this together from last year, right? Moreover, they feel the bio <laughs> to be an unfortunate byproduct of capitalistic modes like chattel slavery. Ah, okay, we have to take a pause here. Okay. Um, Sherwood Chen has worked as a performer with artists including Grisha Coleman, uh, Yoko Kaseki. Uh, Yuko, Yuko Kaseki. Right. Yuko Kaseki, Amara Tabor Smith, uh, Anna Halprin, Min uh, Tanaka, Xavier Leroy, Inkboat, Komu. How do you pronounce? Um, Murobushi. That, that, uh, Murobushi. Well, uh, Chris- yeah, I've, I've been around the block. <laughs> so we can- right. <laughs> <laughs> and and I know you teach classes at ODC because I went to their website. I was like, oh, Sherwood is like all over this this schedule. Um, <laughs> he leads workshops for, for performers for in. Oh, that's oh, okay. He leads workshops for performers in studio and in natural and urban landscapes mm-hmm. worldwide. I remember running into you in Dakar. That was so cool. You and Amara. I think that was the last time we <laughs> saw each other. Almost it was in Dakar. Yeah. Oh, seriously? Dang, that was a long time ago. It was a long wow. time ago, yeah. Yeah, well, I really need to come see you in this. Uh, for over 20 years, you served as a cultural worker in public nonprofit and philanthropic, philanthropic <laughs> sectors, focusing on community <clears throat> arts programming, arts education, arts grant making, and as an artist act, advocate in the United States, with a focus on supporting tradition based Native Californian and immigrant artists. And he has a website, SherwoodChin.com. All righty. So, um, Sherwood and Gabriel, tell us about your work in uh, Jeff Jess Curtis Gravity Presents Invisible. Go for it, Gabriel. <laughs> I was going to say the same thing. Um, <laughs> I know. That's why I beat you to it. <laughs> um, I mean, I'll just start by saying that we've both been involved in this for about three years now. So almost, I think it's the third year, actually, that we've been um, in rehearsal in some way for uh, a project. This is, of course, two different projects, but... The first one was in 2017, and that was a very different um, experience. It was a first take, um, first draft, I guess, in a way, for how we were um, entering as able – me, I'll talk for myself. As, as, as I was entering as an able-bodied dancer who had um, also limited experience dancing and limited experience with access questions, so 
Um, that piece went up in 2017 and sort of opened up a lot of um, those uh, curiosities. And I think this round has been a lot, um, uh, I've come from a place not of expertise, but of sort of more, um, more ability to understand how to talk about and, and engage with um, these things that are really complicated around access and, um, and, and visual impairment that I just didn't have any, uh, any language for before. So um, our role has been kind of, I mean, my role has been very much like stepping in and um, feeling humble and also feeling like um, there's a lot of things that can be learned in the room and bringing my own sort of like joy to the process and laughter and um, my, my, I'm, I'm trained as a theater actor from, from Yale University, so I have like lots of experience with scripts and languaging things. And so this whole process has been also asking us to be very vocal, um, which I, I do plenty of in my own work. So it's been nice to see how that carries over to um, the dance context. Mm. Mm -hmm. Sherwood? Oh, yeah. Well, um, what other thing I would add maybe would be that um, I, I um, I feel like the, with this piece, Jess is really trying to provoke and ask questions for the audience, uh, as, you, as you had read earlier in terms of um, the, the material that you read at Wanda, in terms of asking, well, in what way do you experience a dance? And traditionally, a dance is something that's really considered a very visual medium. Um, and I think that this provocation is, for me, hits me on two fronts. One is... I think for people in general who come together, the audience who's going to be there, we're going to share the space with the performers um, to really remind us of our, as humans, just our, our ability to be able to perceive and to feel and that we would have all of these um, resources at our, our sensory resources at our, um, that, that are available for us. And so in that sense, I think that the piece really provokes that um, searching, opening, and questioning for uh, for not only the public, but also the dancers. And that brings me to the second point, which is as a performer, I think that I've had a career um, and been trained in a way to, to almost unconsciously assume that the visual was going to be the default dominant um, mode of, of uh, communication. And I think that for me, this project has been very provocative and inclusive of, as, as Gabriel was mentioning, the earlier phases when we were beginning to research this and taking a look at um, the, the very rich practice of audio description that exists for television film performances, but then beginning to see how that's incorporated in real time live dancing. And I would say that as a, as a performer, that's been a, a wonderful challenge and also really pushing me to, uh, in, in addition to specifically working with um, the uh, fellow artists on the team who have visual impairments and other team members as well. Um, Jess, you can talk about them maybe perhaps uh, next, but in terms of uh, working with them, really allowing me to um, figuratively and perhaps very li literally opening my eyes to new ways of, of actually considering um, what it means to perform for a public. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I would, so if Jess, I could jump in. Yeah, I was just going to say um, these uh, both Sherwood and uh, and Gabriel are such articulate people and super interesting collaborators to work with, but um, and also humble. And I want to I want to just underline. I, I think one of the dangers of this piece in talking about it is that because we do we are sort of inspired and coming from a place of 
research around sense around perception and stuff that um, it can sound very brainy um, and actually the piece is inc really in both both Sherwood and Gabriel just dance amazingly and ecstatically in this piece and I I get to watch this piece I'm, I'm not uh, I don't perform in the piece and and just getting to feel the wind rushing by as either of them um, zoom through the room right in front of you or watch watch them um, work with each other they have a really beautiful duet at the beginning of the piece where they just they just really quickly uh, describe little takes on what they're how they're interacting with each other and they're they're just amazingly beautiful dancers both both to see if you and to listen to um, so I'm I'm really honored to work with the two of them well, thank you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, could you talk a little bit more about um, sort of how how invisible um, see uh, unpacks the differences between the ways non-sighted and sighted people experience and imagine a performance mm -hmm. or the world? Uh, because I was also looking at um, this. Uh, I don't know how to pronounce the person's name, Alva Noe? Uh, Alva Noe, yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, no, no, no. Gerald, Gerald uh, Perner, uh, who is a um, yeah. photographer and uh, art critic and essayist and artist and who's also blind, talked about sort of how um, the performance um, with your company um, – the the um the critic says that the room starts in my head <laughs> um uh -huh. and uh then starts in the in the person's body and then uh the uh perner writes i become the room i don't recognize it and i don't perceive it i just become the room itself became the flesh between the pictures and the room i'm like wow what an interesting I um, love yeah. reflection on 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 the piece and on the work, and I'm like, okay, so how do how do you facilitate that? <laughs> you know, choreographers, you know, um, you know, in the studio presence, sure. how do you do that? Well, one of the things, that, one of the really basic things that we did was uh, we worked a lot in the dark, and we also mm. worked. Our composer Sam Hertz um, mm -hmm. is a, a, a experimental composer who actually is a graduate of the master's program at Mills College in Oakland um, and mm -hmm. Sam had us do a lot of, of what what of deep what what are called deep listening exercises from um, an amazing artist Pauline Oliveros we did a lot of her sort of exercises around just listening to the room and as as the dancers began to dance thinking about how the the dance the sounds that their dance was making as much as what it might look like and because we were in the dark what it might look like um, was kind of irrelevant in a certain way so um, I think there's that element of it and it's been um, and then the the audience is really literally in the room with us that you have a, a number of choices um, you can either sit around the edges when you come like the risers at counterpulse we've blocked off and so it's everyone is on the stage and then there are there's a row, a circle of chairs in the middle facing out, 
So those people are literally right in the middle of the dance. And then there are a variety of other places sort of on the diagonals and throughout the space where you can sit and the dancers literally, you know, rush past you or uh, are dancing around you. Gabriel has this amazing <laughs> moment in one of the large sections where he just, he, they, uh, Gabriel runs around and says, says, I'm orbiting, I'm orbiting. And, um, and his orbits each of the, the sort of positions in the room and you feel Gabriel, you know, brushing past you and, and, um, and really in a kind of ecstatic state that's really transcends in a different way. So I think um, what Gerald talks about is, is this mobilization of hearing and feeling the room sort of locates mm -hmm. in it in a different way. Whereas when we're used to just looking at things across the room, they're distant, they're farther away, they're other than us. And in, I think when we, we take away vision, so yeah, in this piece, about 20 minutes of the piece in total is, is in the dark um, in, and very low lighting. So you, it, we hope to bring your attention to your, your other senses um, other than vision. So you really get to feel your own body in the middle of it and feel part of it. Hmm. Wow. That sounds really, really fascinating. Um, and then there are um, pre-show touch tours for every show. Yeah. Um, as well as ASL interpretation um, uh, for, I guess, um, uh, deaf, and it says D forward slash deaf audiences. Yeah, yeah. Um what is the pre-show touch tour? Does one of you want to explain our pre-show touch tours? Gabe or Jeff Sherwood? Uh, well, uh, from my experience of it, it's been a uh, we have these we have these elements of the set that are maybe hard to explain when the audio describer is talking about the show when it's happening. So before the show. We'll invite visually impaired audiences or folks who maybe are curious about the um, the usage of this sort of um, new technique and uh, making things visible for folks um, to come early and they can they can feel the props of the set, get a sense of the room, and also talk to all the performers beforehand who will describe themselves um, kind of from top to bottom, what they're wearing, what kind of sounds mm -hmm. their shoes make, and that way during the show when um, they're being described, it won't be as much of a jump to, to imagine where they might be, who they might be, what they might look like, um, what the room might look like. So it's sort of like a, it's like a, pre, a preamble uh, kind of thing for those who maybe we also, will have a harder time uh, gathering. Those we also, um, in that, usually in the touch doors, we also hone in and zoom into a specific moment in the piece that will be performed and really try to break it down in a way to be able to allow um, those who are taking the touch tour to to feel the contours of uh, our, our physical positions, um, to be able to describe what happened so that they, they can get um, some insights that uh, say you, you wouldn't necessarily get just by coming to the performance. Hmm. Wow, that's really, really, really nice. Um, so um, I was wondering, uh, Gabriel and, and Sherwood, if you could talk about if, I don't know, if your primary um, – uh, sense is visual um, or not. Mm. But I was wondering sort of shifting from um, sort of the way that you operate 
you know, as a, a sensory being to be able to um, uh, to be able to, I guess, envision and create work that has a strong other sense that one, you know, maybe that you weren't as strong and in, you know, then, but probably now you are because you've been working on this, I think you said for a year or two. Well, it's been a challenge. It's been, um, it's been quite a rich challenge for me. Like, I, I feel like mm-hmm. even though we, we have, we had started research a couple of years back, it's, it's something that every day I'm having to come into the space and try to find something new. And also to, to and really to, to say that this is also something that Jess really encourages uh, for us is that this is not just some sort of written piece with everything kind of set um, <laughs> Uh, set and choreographed to the T, and there's a real commitment in this. Is, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Jess, but I feel like there's a re- also a real, a real dedicated commitment to the high art of improvisation, which is also an additional mm-hmm. challenge, which really allows us, pushes us towards being very present in the moment, which then, to go back to your question, Wanda, really demands us to have to touch base with what we're feeling, what we're sensing, and what we're perceiving. And so for me, even though we have four more performances this week, Thursday through Sunday, uh, each night having to come into sort of an arena of senses in order to, to navigate it as a performer and also in many ways in respect to who is there in the space, the, the chemistry or the frequency of, of the public who is there, that constellation of people. Mm-hmm. Ah, wow. Yeah. So um each night is is I mean there is the scaffolding but there's room for change so that um the audience participates in the creation of the work that um they're perceiving. To some degree. I mean I I think I would I pers- I would maybe describe it. It's a little more sturdy than just scaffolding. Um Okay. So that I, we have, we have, we call them scores, um, sort of like mm-hmm. a musical score. So mm-hmm. um, the each section, um, I would say, if, if you come more than once, which now several people have come multiple times, um, mm-hmm. each section sort of looks the same, but the exact um, actions or things, the, the the specific actions or things that a, a dancer might do or say in any given moment are are open because we are working as Sherwood said very much with what are you perceiving right now if one of the first scores the dancers are all lying on the floor in the dark and their score is to pick one of the sensations in their body and just tell the audience like I'm feeling pressure against the floor or I'm mm-hmm. beginning to see a shimmer of light on the golden curtain or um, and so every night to be really true to that process and really reflect something um, that is actually happening in their body at every moment is, is what we try to do. So there's still a structure to that, you know, because they're all lying on the floor. Pretty much every night, somebody will say, "I'm feeling pressure against the floor," <laughs> but um, <laughs> but it's really open. It's really open to to uh, them really being in that. And then 
we have what we call um, we've we've made up a new word we call grammaturgy. So it's kind of mixing the word dramaturgy with grammar. Um, so uh, one of the tools we use in this sort of collision of using language to describe movement is that each, um, throughout the piece, different scores have different grammatical structures. So in that opening in that opening phase, people speak um, in the first person um, first person present and say, "I am walking across the room. I am jumping. I am running around." Whatever they're doing, they speak about themselves. And then there's a really beautiful duet later in the piece where um, on uh, where Gabriel and and one of the German performers Xenia speak to each other and and they describe what the other person is doing. So they'll speak in the second person and say, "You are you are holding a microphone. You are smiling at me. You are feeling embarrassed." Um, and so using those kind of structures. Uh, are are kind of the the core of how we keep a balance of having the piece be consistent each night and uh, and also be alive in every moment every night too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, so invisible is uh, created and performed by an international cast of six blind visually impaired and sighted body-based dancers and performers. So, um, uh, Sherwood and, and Gabriel, how how has it been, um, or maybe maybe this was not something that you hadn't um, experienced before, but working with, with artists that um, have different sensorial abilities, um, like, for instance, I believe if a person is – is is visually impaired or blind that they probably have heightened um abilities in other areas. So I was just wondering um sort of how how that's worked out insofar as creating the work that you all have that you're presenting presently. Um it's think, been it's been really oh, go ahead. Okay. Sorry. It's been really um actually funny because one of the things that I definitely have noticed with I'm one of the performers named Tiffany, who we've worked with for two years now. Uh, she makes a joke mm-hmm. a lot that um, that sighted people don't really listen that well. Uh, so even when we're, like, getting <laughs> notes from Jess or we're talking amongst ourselves, um, she'll have all the information, like, usually, like, like minutes before any of uh, the rest of us have it because we've all been sort of talking over each other and not quite tuned into our listening sense. And she's definitely mm-hmm. recording everything in her auditory space. So she has, like, the instructions down. She knows when things are happening. She knows all these things are um, are kind of uh, are clear to her from a, from that space, and so I've been constantly aware of how much I'm uh, still still very much privileging my visual uh, information in, in terms of gags, jokes, notes, all these things. That definitely comes up in the rehearsal process. Um, but apart from that, I think it's been really um, gorgeous. I mean, not just working with folks who are blind and visually impaired, but also working with folks who are German. Um, it's been also a new thing for me in working with people with different language abilities. Uh, we went to Germany, mm-hmm. and the the piece actually was a little, was actually performed more in German there than it is here in the Bay. So uh, mm-hmm. also having the sort of um, disposing of my language as well, as well as my ability was sort of a uh, new thing for me, and also working abroad was a new thing for me. So personally, it was a lot of uh, steps towards um, trying to understand what it is to be a performer internationally and also through different types of bodies. So I I did appreciate that. Um, a lot personally, but sure, we can go ahead and 
and ask. No, I just wanted to add, and also it was a little bit reflecting upon Wanda, your your uh, previous question, what my experience was as a performer and working with uh, a cast of of uh, people, of just people who see in different ways. Uh, mm -hmm. I, as a sighted performer, am actually a representative of a dominant culture, and I think that in working with these performers, it has been incredibly humbling and opening for me to be able to recognize how light dependent as as a term that we've kind of discussed in 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 our, in our process are light dependent I am and that actually is a, a great handicap that actually has pushed me to try to um, ask bigger bigger questions of what it means to to as a performer to perform and in, in, in what way are we sharing um, and so this project really has set that up so that those kind of standards which are so revolving around the kind of dominant visual culture um, are really put into question and to be able to work with these performers um, who are so skilled at be able to uh, um, is is wonderful I mean the, these moments in the dark that where we were you know trying to train in the dark um, <laughs> there's there's the the cast who is much more light dependent ends up um, whoa whoa you know feeling so disoriented meanwhile um, Tiffany Taylor who who um, Gabriel mentioned is like what it's the same, you know, it, uh, she has uh, full command and competent, competency in the space. And and uh, that's really a great thing to, to see and learn. And it's it's a challenge um, as somebody who's representing a dominant culture. Uh, it takes so long to be able to undo those kind of um, um, conditions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When I when I think about. Um uh you know being being light dependent um and and i i see how well you know people that are not light dependent function um <laughs> you know uh outside of that particular paradigm there there's a fear um and there's also a trust i mean there if there was trust then there wouldn't be the fear but because um you know when when you're in different spaces like trying to cross the street or in the public and you know there's a lot going on and you have to move in the space and you want to be safe it's like ah so I'm really happy that I can open my eyes and, and, and you know navigate myself across these different you know spaces but I just wonder about you know as 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 choreographers and dancers you know the whole idea of trust and fear and and where, where does that go <laughs> Um, when you are, um, you know, put into situations or you put yourself in a situation where um, there's a need to lean on somebody else, somebody else's strength even. Yeah, I think one of the things we're uh, we're learning or we have learned and we continue to work on is also um, it's also not projecting um, onto people with visual impairment. Um, one of our collaborators, Georgina Klieg, who is a blind author um, who uh, teaches at, at, at Cal at, at UC Berkeley, has a great mm -hmm. book called um, More Than Meets the Eye, What Blindness Brings to Art. And she has a great mm -hmm. chapter in that book just talking about all the ways that we use blind people as metaphors for either being ignorant or being um, being the needing our sympathy or needing our our help and she's quite um, 
adamant about you know there there are lots of, of very autonomous blind people that that um, that really get along in the world and as mm -hmm. with many kinds of disability it really comes down to what are the structures that we as a society create that get in people's way or that are you know sight dependent um, or light dependent as Sherwood calls it um, that that are what are ways that we yeah, that, that we've constructed um, situations that, that, that rely on sites. So I think it's really um, been in, super interesting to just sort of get some of those out of the way and, and develop different practices. So like when we're sitting in a room noticing how, how often we'll just say, you know, oh, over there and point our, point our head or our gaze towards <laughs> something and expect mm -hmm. everyone in the room to know what we're talking about. And it's been re that's a really, a really um, pernicious habit to try to get over and remember to say over to my left in the you know in the back corner of the room, um, or even just in it talking about talking to someone in a room instead of just saying you when there are five people in the room and and knowing how how so little habits like that that are that are interesting mm -hmm. to notice and go oh okay. That's um, that's something, and then and then I think there's something I really I find um, sort of these situations also like that Sherwood and Gabriel were describing about just noticing attend people's attention that, that it's it's a bit of a myth that um, blind folks have actually heightened sense abilities in other directions. It's really just that they they in general folks that aren't relying on sight. Have have more of their attention in into in listening, and so it's not. Mm -hmm. It's actually something we can learn from them, uh, from our collaborators. Is like, yeah, just you, you listen more, and 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 it's not it's not a super it's not you know daredevil super ability. It's just <laughs> mm -hmm. paying attention to what you hear more than you know as much as what you see. So that's been super interesting. Mm-hmm. Right, right, yeah. And I just also think about people that are um deaf or um mm -hmm. that uh speak ASL, um, how you know, I have friends that that speak ASL but they also read lips for those of us who are not yeah. fluent in their language. Yeah. And so it's like, Oh, I can't I got I've gotta face the person, right? <laughs> Right. You can't exactly. you can't talk behind yeah. their head. And so, you know, you're talking yeah. about, you know, different orientations. Right, yeah. Oh of course, yeah. We we know that or if we think about it, it's like, oh yeah, these are not super people. They just, you know, sort of honed in on other aspects of their sensory um tools that like you yeah. said, we, we could do, but you know, the default <clears throat> is visual when you can. <laughs> you know, yeah. so and I think it's important mm -hmm. that we create mixed space because all it takes is spending a little bit of time with somebody who's different than you to mm -hmm. notice and go oh right okay I need to pay attention to that and now for me I often walk into performances or things and I notice I notice like oh this is not accessible and why there, with some really simple choices somebody could make it a more accessible space so I think the more 
the more mixed um, we have, the more accessible spaces are, then the, the wider range of people that can access them, and the more we all become familiar with with more diversity and and can support more diversity. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I don't want to keep you all because I know, sure, what you have somewhere to go. But I was wondering, closing, um, maybe you might want to talk about who you'd like to see in the audience, um, who you haven't seen yet in the audience. And then, Jess, I wanted you to talk about the Lighthouse for the Blind and the uh, the Center for Cultural Innovation. But I know the uh, Lighthouse for the Blind, they, they're a really wonderful um, organization. A friend of mine um, is a part of it. So anyway, I want you to be able to talk about that too. Cool. But go so who ahead. would you sure like to see? Gabe. Um, I don't know. Apart from just folks who are in the deaf community, I guess I really wouldn't mind seeing uh, more folks from the neighborhood come see the show, um, and mm-hmm. also um, folks who maybe uh, have less experience with dance. I think we'll get a really holy experience from this kind of uh, work because it really is giving them so much more, so much more sensation than they would get from watching a ballet. So that's my my first uh, my first understanding of who I would love to see there in the space with us. Yeah, Sherwood, do you have any particular audiences here you wish would be there? Uh, well, I agree with Gabe, and I also think that this is the kind of piece that both uh, traditional dance and theater audiences would uh, come out feeling really stimulated by because it really challenges uh, the the existing notions of what a performance is in terms of its visual, typical visual orientation. But also, I think that um, anybody who has a body who, who actually can senses is would, would would be able to get a lot out of the material. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. I mean I'm just as as a producer <laughs> of this of the piece too, I'm like I want everyone to come. I think it's an amazing show for everybody. Um regardless of whether you have I think there are different things in it for different people. It's really fun and really funny. Um mm-hmm. the, and um the performers are amazing and the set and costumes are beautiful and the the music <clears throat> that Sam has made that underpins um all of this talking that we've talked about is really beautiful so it's it's a it's 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 a smart show but it's also really entertaining and and engaging and um so I hope anyone it's a great date night I've been telling some of my friends you get to you can sit in the dark and hold your hand the hold hold the hand of your date, um, and Although it's really fun. You do also run the risk that some, one of the performers may hold your hand as well. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that that is okay. possible. Or sit on your lap if you sit in certain chairs and have consent and that where you've opted into being in contact with the performers. One of them may sit on sit on your lap or give you a head massage at some point during the piece. Audience members always, we reserve, they reserve, we reserve the right that the audience members always have the right to say no thank you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Uh, so would you say that this would be great for um, all ages, like parents could bring their children? Absolutely. I'm, uh, the one thing is that there, there's uh, a cup, one extended period of, of absolute darkness, 
um, mm-hmm. that we had in Berlin, a, a colleague of ours tri- tried the experiment of bringing his one-year-old um, and mm-hmm. who made it five minutes through the darkness and then sort of got a little upset and and they had to leave. But, but it's mm-hmm. really, um, yeah, it's really fun and visual. And ironically, it's also, it is a very visual piece that, um, and swirling around and, it's a really fun piece and accessible, I think, to a whole age range. Um, mm-hmm. There have been a number of kids that have come and, and seen it and uh, and enjoyed it. And it's about an hour long. It, it's an hour long without an intermission, so it's not, you know, a three-hour opera. Yeah. yeah. So I think all ages and all styles and of folks can can really access something in it. Mhm. Okay, cool. Yeah, and all the performances take place at Counterpulse, 80 Church Street in San Francisco, and you can visit JessCurtisGravity.org forward slash invisible for the box office, or you can call 415-626-2060, and tickets are reasonable, 10 to $30, so that's pretty cool as well. Um, yeah, so Jess, um, tell us a little bit about uh, Lighthouse, um, you want to hear Sure. I mean, yeah, Lighthouse for the Blind has been really supportive over the last four years of, as we've been developing this kind of work. Um, Serena Olson, in particular, the adult uh, adult programs coordinator there, um, have brings has brought groups of, of folks to uh, to our shows. There, I think I, I think there the Lighthouse has actually bought a block of tickets on Friday night. And um, if you're a, a San Francisco resident and you have visual impairment or are a member of Lighthouse for the Blind, you can come for free to the show. You need to contact Lighthouse to do that. But um, we've been, uh, over the last year, uh, teaching contact improvisation dance classes at Lighthouse. And then, and they've been also bringing folks to a number of our um, of our sort of work in progress showings to kind of test out how how would these techniques work for folks that that uh, that have visual impairment, um, and so that's been a really in good uh, partnership. We're also Gravity's um, in addition to to this piece that has all of these sort of access accommodations embedded in it. We're also offering audio description <clears throat> and touch tours. Um, for other artists' work, so we've got a we've kind of built a little uh, set of programs that we call Gravity Access Services, where we can come to your show if you're a choreographer and want to make your work accessible, or a, or a theater director, um, mm. you can uh, you can hire us to come in and we'll watch the piece and then describe it. Gabriel and Sherwood have both um, worked oh, at, nice. to describe different cultural events in the Bay area over the last two years. Mm-hmm. And, and mm-hmm. we're building up that service and we're going to be doing, um, for shotgun players play Elevada in, in Berkeley on uh, November mm-hmm. 17th in the afternoon. And we'll be doing something at OBC for hope more on November 9th. And we're going to be describing for Axis dance, um, at who are yeah. performing at Z space in San Francisco on October 27th. So, um, we're doing. There's a lot of that, and we've we've done a lot of that partnering with Lighthouse for the Blind as well. Um, they've been really supportive and instrumental in our um, 
in our sort of development of that practice and helping us reach out to blind audiences um, around the Bay Area to to do that. Oh, that's awesome. Oh, that's really great. That's really, yeah. really great. Yeah, so we'll have everybody who wants to be in the audience can be in the audience. Yeah. And also on stage, as you know, as you are illustrating, you know, in the work, and Axis has a really long tradition of, of doing um, really wonderful work um, for a variety of different kinds of folks, you know, different bodies. Mm-hmm. You know, we see everybody on the stage, which is great, because sometimes, you know, you think, like, who's missing, right? Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah. and this is, I mean, Tiffany Tiffany is actually a prime example of that, that Tiffany trained as an actor at, in college, but the first time that she had come to an audio describe, she came to Claire in my piece uh, in 2016, um, three years ago, and um, was, and it was the first time that she had been to an audio described dance event. And coming out of that, she was inspired and she came to a workshop that I was teaching. And then I invited her to be in a piece. And when you think about, you know, when I think about how I became an artist, it was because I went and saw something. I actually think I, my first dance program was seeing the Oakland Ballet when I was in high school up in Chico, California. And the Oakland Ballet came and I went, I wanted. I was I saw it and I went I want to do that and I started taking ballet classes in in high school and um and that I think in order to make make also the who's on stage more diverse we need to let a more, a more diverse range of people experience the work and then I think it really comes around when more diverse artists are able to train and become professional then we have a much more rich range of voices um, creating culture in the world. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, that's really awesome. Yeah. Any any um, concluding thoughts from anyone? Have we covered everything? Other Thank than you. people need to actually <laughs> come see it, <laughs> experience it. Oh, you're quite welcome. You're quite welcome. Yeah, it's really a pleasure, Wanda. We appreciate the work that you continue to do. And, yeah, we hope people will come Listen, see, feel the 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 piece. It's really with. I think we're sold out already on Friday night, but there are still tickets for Thursday, Saturday, and Sunday. And um, mm-hmm. yeah, I hope people will come. Yeah, Thursday tomorrow, right? <laughs> yeah. Mhm. Cool. Cool. Well, thank you once again for the wonderful conversation, and uh, congratulations on being able to continue the work. You know, for such a sustained length of time, uh, just really wonderful um, that you are doing such great fundraising and, you know, sort of filling in these niches so that, you know, this kind of work can happen. Well, it's a pleasure. And we we appreciate, yeah, that small radio stations continue to exist as well and to help (laughs) spread the word. So, Uh, Well, thank you. All right. You all take good care. Look forward to seeing you all on stage. You too. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Peace and bless. Bye-bye. Bye. So we are going to close with uh, – a rebroadcast of an interview with Andrew Saito, um, the playwright for El Rio, which is currently at Brava through uh, the end of this month. And um, and Andrew's going to be flying back from New York 
for a series of conversations, um, the weekend that has the 30th in it. <laughs> and um, and then we, we have an interview with Leslie um, Currier and Damien Brown from Marin Shakespeare, A Midsummer Night's Dream, about A Midsummer Night's Dream, which closed, so you're not going to be able to go see that. But you can hear them talk about the uh, All People of Color cast and um, and the idea of consent, uh, which you know was 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 a, a through line philosophically in in their production of the work, and then we close with Stella Heath, who talks about the Billie Holiday Project, which is tomorrow at um, uh, Feinstein's at Hotel Nico in San Francisco, just one night only. Uh, she's going to be doing her um, Billy Pro. The Billy Holiday Project, so you want to definitely try to catch that, because I don't know where it's going to show up next. I mean, it's not the first time that it's been produced, but um, it sounds really, really marvelous. So anyway, enjoy, and we'll be coming back with another edition of Wanda's Picks on Friday morning, eight o'clock Pacific time. Para su Good morning and welcome to Wanda's Picks, a black arts and cultural program of the African Sisters Media Network. And that was Zion Trinity singing opening prayer for the African deity, Eshu Legba. A deity that lets us know that we always have choices. We are never victims, so we should definitely take a minute, pause, and exercise our options and not think that what's directly in front of us is the only path available. So we are so excited to have um, in the studio... Um, I think this is, uh, I'm not sure if it's Idris, um, Anifa Moshe Cooper, or Andrew Saito, um, the playwright for Rio, El Rio. Um, so who's in the studio? <laughs> is Andrew here? Oh, hey, Andrew, I know we don't have a long time. Congratulations on the opening of your play, El Rio, this Friday, September 27th, and going all the way through Sunday, October 20th at Brava Theater Center. Um, so it's a it's a collaboration, right, um, with um, the uh, the smaller theater company um, that uh, Idris is one of the founders of. Correct. The Black the Black Artists Contemporary Cultural Experience, the ACCE. 
Right, right, yeah. And and you are no stranger to the airwaves. Uh, we're we're so happy to have you on, even even briefly, you know, because you're getting ready to take a flight. Thank Where you. Are you going? I appreciate. I'm flying back to New York. Oh, you're in New York now. Okay. Which, which is where I live now. I, I live there these days. Oh, okay, yeah, because you used to live here. Oh, so you got I your did, play all indeed. ready to go, and now you're gone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you are an international playwright whose focus, focus, you focus on indigenous and cross-racial stories, hybridity, and struggles against colonialism, and its long-lingering footprints. You've worked with Peru's legendary theater collective, uh, Grupo Cultural. Um, you how do you pronounce that? Okay, Yuyachikani. Yeah, and Cuba's Conjunto Cultural. And finish that one for me too. So it's Conjunto Cultural Corimacao, which is a okay. uh, um, arts and a multidisciplinary arts center created in Cuba in the early 90s during the special period um, when there was very little. Uh, People were kind of starving, and yet the government felt it was important to still support art, so they created this People's Art Center very close to the Bay of Pigs. Okay, yeah, yeah. And and then keep on going, because I don't know how to pronounce um, Asociación and then the rest okay, of Okay, Asociación Chaco Sun is uh, indigenous. It's a Mayan theater ensemble in Guatemala, and my collaborator and dear friend, Joaquin Valdez, and I have been collaborating with them for a few years, about two years now, two and a half years, and um, mm-hmm. we had a show earlier this year at La Peña Cultural Center, and then at El Teatro Campesino called Men of Rabinal, and that was about the um, the Rabinal Achi, the this 500-plus year, or 600-plus year old Mayan dance drama, which is the only known uh, pre-Hispanic play um, mm. that from before the conquest to still be performed in Mesoamerica. Nice. That sounds awesome. I'm so sorry I missed that. Wow. I need to well, follow We'll be bringing it back. We'll be, we'll, we'll be bringing oh. it back. So. Oh, super, it. super. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. And so, you know, the kind of work that you do is just so, you know, phenomenal. Um, I remember when we spoke last, I think um, you had a play at um, as a part of the uh, Bay Area Playwrights Festival. And, um, oh, yeah, that's correct. Yeah. And that, yeah. And that was, you know, that was a really um, a story that we don't hear about a lot. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about about this particular work. Um, you know, you own you uh, you hold a, B, a MFA from the Iowa Playwrights Workshop, and Idris uh, Anifa Woshe Cooper does too, and, and she taught there. <laughs> and yes, and you were a Fulbright. No, go ahead. Fulbright scholar, correct? Yeah. No, no, you were going to say something about Idris. Oh, I, I don't, I don't remember. She's okay. wonderful. Yeah, and yeah, right. Yeah, and uh, you were um, a Fulbright scholar in Papua New Guinea, which sounds really Correct. fascinating. And did a play come out of that? <laughs> uh, a screenplay came out of that. It has yet to be made, but I still have hopes Ooh. and faith that it will, that it will end up end up uh, bec- end up becoming uh, something for audiences. Yeah, yeah, but um, I want to let you talk a little bit about about this play because um, the time is ticking away, and and then we can come back to um, some of the things you 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 care about that you're really passionate about. Um, <laughs> so Great. tell us about El Rio. So El Rio is the very first play I ever wrote back in um, 
2002, actually. And it's, um, you know, I wrote it as my undergraduate thesis at, for the Ethnic Studies Department at UC Berkeley. That's where I majored. That's what I majored in. And it, the play takes place along the Texas-Mexico border, and it follows um, two women, a black seminal woman named Francisca. She's a veteran of, of the Iraq War. And then she basically saves, uh, saves a just-arrived refugee from Guatemala, a Mayan woman named Rosario, and she's there to be raped by... Is that how the play starts? So I'm not really spoiling it. She's about to be raped by a border vigilante, so Francisca saves her, saves her life, and then the two of them are on the run from the law, and the play basically mm. follows the Rio Grande. Um, you know, the plot is sort of linked to the course of the river, and they are being pursued by Reynaldo, who is a... Um, somewhat professionally stagnated border patrol agent who's looking for his chance to rise in the ranks and find glory and he views them he's hoping to catch them as a um, as a way to do that hmm. wow wow but this is your first play how many plays have you written <laughs> oh, I've lost count of 20 something 20 something but this is the yeah. first play I ever wrote and it is very much there. There's the imprint of of three professors um, who who I was staying with at that time. The first, Shedi Moraga, who was my first um, first playwriting mm. mentor. She and wow. I took her Chicana Chicana Latina Theater Workshop at, at Berkeley uh, two years in a row, mm -hmm. and then I studied with her in her playwriting classes at Stanford. And so she, it's a play, and I became a playwright because of her. And mm. um, and then also she dealt a lot with she had us look a lot at issues of of borders and so the border I I don't even quite know how it became the Texas Mexico border but um, but that just became the right place and mm -hmm. and then I was also taking a class with Taya Miles called Africans in Indian Country which is a which was a seminar that focused on Black Native shared history relations, etc. Um, throughout the U.S. U.S. history over the past few centuries, and so Taya is a Black woman, and her husband is Native American, and so she has her her scholarship. As far as I understand, her scholarship before meeting him was focused on Black women's history and literature, and then she met him and fell, she met fell in love with this Native American man and realized that that the two of them uniting, if you will, wasn't a totally new or unique phenomenon in American history or U.S. history, better mm -hmm. put, um, and that the the um, how to put it the um, the weaving together of Black and Native narratives in this country is pretty old. It's probably as old as the history of Black people, the presence of Black people in this country. Or in this continent, better put, and so, um, so that's how the, this one main character, Francisca, this black feminine woman, came about was because I was, I was um, taking Taya's class, and as a mixed race, hybrid, culturally hybrid person myself, while I am neither in my own DNA neither black nor Native American, I still was very drawn to um, the Taya's field of study, 
And mm-hmm. so she was a, she and Suri were my closest mentors on the project. And then the other character, Rosalia Chen, who's a Maya Achi woman from the village of Rio Negro in the middle of Guatemala. Um, Rio Negro is the site um, of a massacre in, I think, 1982. There was a village that did not want to um, – they were ordered to be relocated so that the government with World Bank funding could build a hydroelectric dam. But that when that dam was built, it was going to flood their village. So the government told them to move. They didn't. They refused to move. There were threats. The men left, thinking that everyone else would be safe, that they would be the targets. But then these soldiers and paramilitaries arrived and um, massacred everyone who was left, which was women, senior citizens, or elders, and children. Very few survivors. So. Rosario is a survivor of that massacre, and I learned about that massacre in a class with a third professor at Berkeley, Claudia Carr, who her class was um, called Indigenous Communities and International Development, and we looked at how giant conglomerations and institutions like the World Bank and the IMF had great sway over indigenous cultures all over the planet, and from this case of Rio Negro in Guatemala was one case study. We also looked at Alaska, West Papua, I think Hawaii, and and mm-hmm. um, community in Amazon. And so that, that that was the stew in which I was in my very early twenties. Um, you know, mm-hmm. that's the stew I was in at at, at Cal, and um, it all sort of coalesced into this play. And and now, seventeen years later, um, Idris mm-hmm. is doing a marvelous job directing it and mm-hmm. and um, she she first read the play when she was a panelist on the Global Age Project at Aurora Theater in 2012 when I was in Papua New Guinea I, sent, I did it, I was in Papua New Guinea so I revisit this play every few years and or have mm-hmm. been and um, you know lie dormant for a few years and I'll come back to it and so in 2012 I don't know what inspired me but I was in Papua New Guinea and I completely rewrote the play from basically mm. the ground up. And while the plot and characters are the same, and some of the scenes are kind of, um, you know, are similar to what they were originally. Um, mm. I cut the cast from eight to, to four actors. And that's the other main characters. I mentioned the two women and Reynaldo, the Border Patrol agents. The play is united by, by El Rio, who gives the play its title, and that mm-hmm. character played by, by Carla Pantoja is the Rio Grande as a person, right? Or as a person embodying the river or the border. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. she not only gives life and voice to the land, but she also portrays all the other characters in the play, and there are a lot of minor characters. And so they are basically... Um, she she she's literally the border, and she's also she also plays the people who live on the border, right on both sides, mm. Mexico and Texas, and mm-hmm. and she's a shapeshifter, she's a trickster, she's a narrator, and and in her her narration takes the form of gorilos, and gorilos are a traditional northern Mexican song form, which during the time of the Mexican Revolution were used as a form of journalism before TV or radio, and so. These singer-songwriters would sing songs. They would compose and then sing songs about Pancho Villa and other like the, the events of the day, and they would go around 
around the villages in northern Mexico um, to telling to keep people up to date. So she, she that and that was always my um, vision back in 20, 2002 was to have the play have corridos in the play, but at the time I felt incapable of writing them, and so in a way that this play, the original version of this play was beyond my artistic skills at the moment. So I, mm -hmm. in a way I've had to mature into a playwright capable of actually executing my original vision. Wow. How fun, right? You know, like just sort of coming back to a work that in its genesis is, is perfect, but then you have to live some more and get some more skills, and then you revisit it and you birth this this more mature, um, you know, entity. That's really great. And uh, and you are going to be coming back because I noticed that you and Idris are going to have um, a conversation in October when you return. Yeah. Um, so you won't be here for opening night this weekend, but you'll be back. Um, let's see. Uh, Friday, October 18th through uh, Saturday, October 19th, and then Sunday. Um, Correct. Right. Super. Correct. And which which day is the panel? Um, I mean, the panel, but the discussion with Idris. Is it going to be every evening or in the afternoon on the 20th, or just one of those? I sus I suspect it's on Saturday. The um, I mean, I, I, the me, 19th. I, I suspect it'll be on Friday on Friday the 18th. I suspect so. Okay. All right. Cool. Super. Super. Um, do you have to dash? <laughs> we can have it. We can take a few more minutes. Okay. Super. I just wanted to um, to talk a little bit more about um, you know the uh, you know your your own hybridity you know sort of being um, from multiple cultures and and also wanted to just say uh, Cherie uh, Moraga of the um, this bridge called my back uh, fame. Exactly. I was like, yes, oh, my yes, God, yes, like, yes. for real, for real? Like, you had all these powerful women professors, like, you know, when you're just like a newbie <laughs> in, in higher yeah, education. Yeah, it was really, like, it was really, a, really a blessing. It was really a blessing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and hopefully, you know, they'll be able to come see the rebirth of this work, right? Um, I, I hope they're I around. Emailed I emailed Cherie. Claudia will probably come see it. She saw me in the Robbie Nile. Um, mm hmm and then Taya has lived long within Michigan, but I'll send her, I'll send her the video. Yeah, yeah, because this is such a tribute to to their ah, scholarship, awesome. you know, you know, coming through you, <laughs> like, wow. <laughs> I mean, to have a student, like, really, <laughs> Andrew, really. Yeah. Well, thank you. you thank know, this you. is like the biggest tribute that anyone could give, um, you know, a, a teacher to be able to produce work that demonstrates your understanding of, you know, the philosophy and intentions of, of the scholar. Mm, well, thank you for saying that. that. That means a lot. Yeah, yeah. So talk about yourself a little bit more. I mean, you're just like the work that comes through you is like, oh, my gosh. Thank you. Well, so I am the uh, grandchild of – no, 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 pardon me. I am – I am the, I'm the grandchild of survivors of the Japanese-American internment, specifically my father's parents met in Manzanar when they were incarcerated during mm -hmm. World War II. And mm -hmm. I am the great-grandchild of immigrants from Japan, Austria, and I believe the great-great-grandchild of, of immigrants from Ireland. Um, 
And my mother, may she rest in peace, was the oldest of seven children, uh, grew up in Ambridge, Pennsylvania, a little coal town, coal and steel, or steel town, pardon me, steel town outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And um, when she was 13, her family all moved to California because her father mm-hmm. couldn't stand working in the steel mills in Pennsylvania anymore. And um, and my grandfather, Joseph Carlton, was rather notoriously racist, and he um, he oh, so he was rather notoriously racist. To give you an example, he prohibited his youngest daughter from watching the Cosby Show. Mind you, this was in the eighties before before all, everything that's come out recently. So you know, it was a very innocent program, and mm-hmm. but he. Pro- he would not allow her to watch a Cosby show. So anyway, so he had seven children. Six of the mm-hmm. seven of his seven children married people of color of all different races. So really? <laughs> me, and all, me and all of my cousins are mixed race. And I am half Japanese, half white. Two of my cousins are half black, half white. And then five of my cousins are half Mexican and half white. Um, so, so, you know, people say, write what you know, and, um, Marcus Garley, who was my, one of my teachers, he was my teacher before, and he was an amazing writer and phenomenal teacher. Mm -hmm. He writes, as he puts it, he writes about black communities in transition, and he is writing what he knows. He, you know, his father, he grew up in West Oakland, his father, he's not, sorry, he's a preacher, um, you know, he was, you know, grew up very much in uh, in that black community in the black church, and and but yet, what when I grew up, it was always in an extremely mixed race and even international, in a way, international community. In this family, right, that had you know people from all over, and and so um, so I was always very aware, of course, my Japanese heritage, but also you know. Um, that I had these European ancestors, and then I was, you know, my first babysitter was my aunt from Mexico, you know, born in Mexico, <laughs> who was an immigrant, and um, and then my my African American uncle in Georgia from Tifton in southern Georgia. He uh, he's basically my second father. We are extremely close, and he has this large. He also has a lot of siblings, and um, so when when I go down to with him to southern Georgia, I am entirely embraced by this very, you know, this very large southern black family. And so, um, and so I've, I've almost never been in a monoracial environment myself, right? Mm-hmm. And so my experience as an Asian American man, as a Japanese American man, has pretty much always been also, first of all, that I'm mixed race, but also has been in a larger multiracial, multicultural fabric, uh, which is why I was drawn to ethnic studies. And I didn't major in Asian American studies. I majored in ethnic studies, so looking at all of the diversity in the United States. Um, and so, and so I think that's why I'm drawn to stories of interracial um, encounters, if you will, and hybridity, because that's that's what's in my DNA, and so that's why El Rio has uh, has black uh, 
kind of lower Latinx and um, and indigenous characters. There are also white characters, but the, all the white characters are played by Carla Pantoja, who's a Chicana actress, or Whiskerfish, which which we talked about last time, which is about Japanese characters, but they're in Peru, and so they're Japanese Peruvian. And there, there's also this prominent Afro-Peruvian character and an Aymara indigenous Peruvian character. And so it's I I love those spaces where um, which in a way could well, no, that one, it, they can only happen in the United States, but 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 almost most potently and most frequently, these spaces exist in the United States. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Wow. Wow. This is so interesting. Wow. And you know, only only through art can you you know show that movement so well, right? I mm. mean, yeah. I mean, you know, as an artist. You can you can plot it out, you know, in in these yes. various you know plays, and then you can circle back, <laughs> and and then continue yeah. again, and yeah, yeah, wow, it's it's it goes to show you how how much of the ore that one needs to mine these this, these riches, you already oh, own, sure. it's already a part of you, huh? Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely, yes. So, yeah, so I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm bubbling up some new plays inside me, and one of them is going to be uh, me, a fictionalized version of me, and my cousin Ginny, um, mm-hmm. and uh, my who's half black, and my cousin half half black, half white, and my cousin David, who's half Mexican and half white, and it'll be the three of us through a <laughs> seance trying to communicate with our racist dead grandfather. Oh, wow! So wow. we'll see when I write that, but that, that's that's that, that'll probably be written this new year. Mhm. So is that a, is that a new uh, genre for you, sort of calling up um, dead people, or or have you done that before? And how successful well, were you? <laughs> I think that will be in terms of specific fans, and this will be on, in a play form. But I don't expect to actually do it, but oh, maybe I should have researched. But that that's in a way it's new, but in a way. Ghosts and spirits have long been in my work. Mount Misery, which I believe mm-hmm. you saw, have lots of, mm-hmm. you know, it wasn't so much the ghost of young Frederick Douglass. It was Fred, young Frederick Douglass himself, but a lot of people read it as a ghost story, um, which is fine if they want to have that interpretation. El Rio has ghostly, some ghostly characters in it, one in particular. And so, I mean, I will say that I'm always drawn to history. And I do feel like um, connections to what came before can, I mean, it makes, it makes some of the richest storytelling and can really, you know, even if it's a story set in the present, like El Rio is having that um, connection to, like an open door to the past and then co- in a way conjuring, conjuring that, um, those spirits and inviting them inviting them into the now, I think, can really make for fantastic storytelling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, you are a phenomenal storyteller. Wow, wow. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. And um, so why did you move to New York? Um, how come you're not here anymore? Oh, it's the theater, <laughs> it's the theater, theater capital of, of the United States and one of the theater capitals of the globe. So I, I, okay. I, moved, I moved there in order to uh, advance my career. Okay, and is it going well? Um, as you know, it's not you there. 
It's going well. I've greatly expanded my uh, theatrical community, and although ironically, mm-hmm. since moving, most of my most of my work in terms of presenting my plays has been back in California. So, you know, what does that mean? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, maybe you'll be the bridge, um, you know, um, between the two uh, coasts. I'd be honored. I'd be honored. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Cool. Well, gosh, I definitely want to be in the house when you come back and talk to Idris. And, um, uh, excellent. Wow. And, yeah, we yeah, look forward to yeah. welcoming you. Mm-hmm. Super. Yeah, yeah. Well, safe travels. And, wow, thank you so much for this wonderful conversation. And uh, maybe the next time we talk we could um, incorporate um, your um, climate activism, you know, um, that, oh, that you have. Good. Embarked on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think oh, great. definitely. Well, mm-hmm. No, go ahead. Just one minute on that because it's so important. So yes. I'm about to start a, a job uh, in New York City at the Climate Museum, which is the only museum in the United States so far dedicated to climate change. The oh. um, the mission is to cultivate a wide climate citizenry by which people talk about climate change with much greater frequency and then because people are concerned but kind of stay quiet about it um, mm-hmm. the global climate strike this past week notwithstanding and so talking about it with regularity as a necessary step towards taking action and so I would encourage this is an issue that is so urgent it's undeniable that this is happening um, and it affects everyone regardless of where you're living uh, what your what your race is, what your religion is, what your socio what your wealth level is. This is um it's the most dire moment and and we need all hands on deck and all voices and any skill you have can be used towards this effort. Even if you know, you love to cook, okay. Cook a meal for for uh for a bunch of climate activists so they can have a meeting, right? Um Mm-hmm. So I'm happy to talk with anyone about this issue, especially as I become more knowledgeable and more involved. But um, I do want to put out a call to an activist group, which is international in scope. There's a thriving Bay Area chapter, and that is Extinction Rebellion. So if you just look up Extinction Rebellion. Extinction Rebellion. Or, oh, I like yeah, that. Yeah, Extinction Rebellion or Extinction Rebellion uh, Bay Area, you will be able to find um, – Find find info on them and 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 probably join their efforts. So, oh wow! Anyway, nice. thank you so much, Wanda. I so appreciate the time, and I look forward to seeing you in the house in a few weeks. And um, okay. and I appreciate it. Oh, you're quite welcome, Andrew. And uh, safe travels. And yeah, look forward to seeing you in um in a few weeks after your plays had a chance to like have a few runs and knock out the kinks and just get all ready for you to be present and say, oh, my gosh, it's so wonderful. Excellent. <laughs> I, I have high hopes. I have high hopes. Listeners have been fantastic. Oh, yeah, you're, you're, yeah, you've got some great folks, you know, representing those, those marvelous characters you've developed. Yes. Thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> all right. Okay. You take care. We'll talk soon. You too. Okay. Thanks. Bye-bye. You're welcome. Bye. Bye. So I want to let audiences know that um, this weekend, this Friday, um, is a uh, – let me get the details here. Uh, just a second. Um, let's see. I was just looking at it. 
um, this Friday is a Pay What You Can uh, preview, 8 o'clock at Brava Theater Center in the Mission in San Francisco. And uh, and then opening night and the party, after party, is on Saturday the 28th. And then Sunday there's a matinee at 3. Um, each Sunday, the October 6th, October 13th, and October 20th are matinees. And the Friday, Saturday are 8 o'clock uh, performances. And, uh, and again, um, the weekend of the 18th, 19th, 20th, closing weekend, um, there are going to be discussions with uh, the playwright whom we just spoke to, Andrew Saito, and director Idris Cooper, Anifa Walshe. And um, tickets are opening night, 35, general admission, uh, 25, early bird, 20, and, and then pay what you can on the 27th. And then it says, no one turned away for lack of funds, subject to availability. And I think that is throughout the run. So that's pretty cool. And I wanted to give you um wanted to give you the information about where the the theater is located. Um oh here it is. Twenty seven eighty one twenty fourth Street in San Francisco. And the phone number is four one five six four one seven six five seven or info at Brava dot O R G. And again, uh Brava for Women in Arts, Brava Theater. All righty, so while we're waiting for our next guest, oh, uh oh. <laughs> to join us, um, gonna play a little music. Um, I was thinking about uh, I'm Michaela Gaston's Nature Boy, just because we're talking about rivers and migrations and ancestors. Very strange enchanted boy. They say he wanders very far, very far over land and sea. A little shy, sad of eyes, but very wise was a he. Magic day, he passed my way. There always spoke of many things. Who's the king? All this he said to me. The greatest thing you'll ever learn is just to love.
Thank you so much. So that was uh, Michaela Gaston. And um, <laughs> let's see, what are we going to play next? Um, we might stay on the uh, the river themes. Um, <laughs> oh, I like this one. Uh, we're going to play Ooh Chow. Love that one. I was going to play I've Known Rivers, but I really like Ooh Chow.
So that was uh, Dwight Tribble. Uh, ooh, child, love that song. And, uh, oh, I think that might be Damien. <laughs> Good morning, Hello. Damien. How are you? Hi. Good how rising, are you? Wanda. I am well. Good rising, uh, Leslie. Uh, Leslie is no, she didn't make it. Um, because <laughs> I was supposed oh, to call her well, back, and I've been like, she yeah, can, <laughs> yeah, she's in her office. Can you text her while we talk, <laughs> or Absolutely. something? Um, okay, cool, Absolutely. cool. Congratulations on this wonderful, wonderful midsummer night dream. It is so lovely. Well, thank you. I'm so glad that you enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah, I was, I was, yeah, I've been dreaming about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good thing. Mhm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it it is a good thing. Um, so so tell me about you know the vision of having this, you know, melanated cast. But whoa, and and we we like we're like in Wakanda or something, right? Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's kind of, you know, with, with Shakespeare, you, you, can, you can take few liberties with the language, but you can definitely take some liberties with placement. And um, mm-hmm. we wanted to be very careful about how placement was perceived. And um, there were, as I, as I said before, we have a lot of smart people in the cast and a lot of passionate people. And we wanted to be very sensitive to the cultural differences. As you may know, we have Indians in the cast and Filipino mm-hmm. in the cast. So yeah. we wanted to we wanted to pay respect to the um, mythical existence of fairyland. At the same time, um, embrace those bodies that were present on the stage. And um, I think we found a happy medium, I think. <laughs> mm-hmm. But um, yeah. that was um, definitely a lot of discussion around it. And um, mm-hmm. we we walked carefully through it. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah this and it's a large cast too. I mean, there are a lot of you all. <laughs> yeah, it, well, you stage. know, this this time around, it's normally Theseus and um, Oberon is a shared role. The same person does mm-hmm. it, and Hippolyta mm-hmm. and Titania. But mm-hmm. I I wanted more bodies, so mm-hmm. they were okay with splitting those roads up. Because oh, I just, okay. I, just, I wanted that I wanted that presence. I wanted that presence. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad that, that uh Leslie was absolutely okay with that. And um mm-hmm. yeah. And closer to what I wanted to see. So I really appreciate all of the uh highly melanated actors coming out auditioning in <laughs> Marin because it doesn't happen much. You know, for one, it's across the mm-hmm. bridge, and you know, it's, when you're an equity actor, it, it it may be worthwhile. But when you're not an equity actor, it it can be a burden. So, mm-hmm. I was uh, very happy that so many did. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
And um, are any of these um, actors, is this their first time, um, you know, um, on the stage at um, for the 30th anniversary of um, Marin uh, Shakespeare Company? Is this their, like, debut there? Yes, many, most. Mm. I believe that nice. the, um, the ones who have, if I, if I can say the uh, OGs, if you will, would be, uh, mm-hmm. well, myself, <laughs> um, uh, Catherine, Catherine Glenn Smith, she's amazing. She's been there a few times. And mm-hmm. Eliza Boardman, she's been there. She was with me last year with uh, Pericles, and she was also in, I believe, was it Twelfth Night? Uh, she was in another production there. And, and she's, mm-hmm. we, know, we know the run. And Terrence. Terrence as right. well has been there. Mm-hmm. Everybody else, I believe was uh was that first time. And mm-hmm. what was really pleasant was my debut there, I believe it was Othello. That was right. a young man who was in who was in school, who was in the audience mm. at one of yeah. the matinees. And uh, and now he's Jacory Pierre, he's now on the stage with me in this production. So that really Wow. Good. Yeah. 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 Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. And also, yeah. and also Michaela, who was at, uh, I believe, Oakland Tech and wouldn't help mm-hmm. with their production. So I believe the farm. And they came to mm-hmm. the production at Theater First, and she's on the stage. So that mm-hmm. all feels great. <laughs> it does. Right. Yeah. Uh, here's Leslie. Hi, Hi Leslie. Right. Hi, perfect timing. We're just talking about all these wonderful actors, um, and some of whom, um, you know, this is their Marin uh, Shakespeare Company debut. But not the last time you'll see them on our stage. They're fabulous. (laughs) (laughs) Right, yeah. Yeah, and and then I was also thinking about, you know, um, your artistic staff. I was um, looking at, you know, you've got composers, you've got, you know, with Christopher Grant, co-composer, um, uh, and then you've got Regina Evans, costume designer, and uh, and your scenic designer, um, uh, Mel Bratz. Um, like, she is awesome. And, yeah, I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about the folks that we don't necessarily talk about because they're not on stage, but we see their, you know, the work behind the stage is, is sort of facilitates, you know, the production that we are witnessing in the audience. Sure. Uh, Chris Grant is just a really special composer. His when I, when I listen to his work, it's really contemporary, and I can only describe it as weird. He just uses strange sounds and instrumentations, and I thought this will be perfect for the magical world that we're trying to create with this production. And Chris mm-hmm. allows us, has allowed us to use his original music as our pre-show music, so you get to hear his music for an hour before the show begins as well. It's really, really cool. Oh. And Mm-hmm. And Regina Evans, our costume designer, she is just one of my heroes in life. Um, she she uh, was just nominated for an award for her one-woman show, 52 Letters, which is about her experience and others' experience with sex trafficking. It's one of the most 
powerful and important pieces of theater in the Bay Area um, in in recent memory. And and Regina sheds a very brutal and powerful and true light on the plight of young women who are um, often against their will um, uh, sold and trafficked and live in a hell 24-7. And the Bay Area is one of the central locations for this kind of of hideous and and heinous crime uh, against these young women, uh, and Regina's plays just um, it 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 just makes you makes you want to help. And and Regina has a vintage clothing store in Oakland called Regina's Door, which is both a clothing store and a sanctuary for young women uh, who Regina helps uh, get out of this life. Um, so she's an amazing social activist, performer, costume designer. She's When I first talked to her about doing the show, she said, well, here's how I work. I, I, I pray on it and I dream on it, and then the ideas come to me. And I was like, that is perfect for a Midsummer Night's Dream. And when we started seeing her beautiful costume designs and her amazing color palette, it was just um, just stunning. One of the one of the great things about this production, Regina's costume. Mhm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Mhm. Yeah. And the choreography is awesome too. Who's the choreographer? Uh, her name is Lauren Godla, and. She's just a young, hip, Bay Area dancer. Her specialty is dancing suspended from bridges. She does a lot of aerial dancing and choreography. She was just amazing. Um, mm-hmm. We loved working with Lauren. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so talk a little bit about, about the work. Um, and it's, um, you know, concluding... Um, you know, this 30th anniversary um, season, which is so exciting, you know, for your company. Congratulations again. Thank you. Well, I'm certainly happy to be, uh, to have the closing show be this um, Mm -hmm. great new direction for the company. I mean, it's, um, the company has been pushing inclusion for a long time and, and today we're seeing the result with this production of that coming into its own and uh, I'm really hoping that more and more uh, actors of, of color in the Bay Area and even farther than that we have actors, an actor from New York would, would come and grace the stage and share the challenge with the uh, a lot of the population who otherwise wouldn't get to see them because a lot of people just see shows in Marin, and some of them go out to Oakland, San Francisco, Berkeley. But there are some people who are just, you know, travel is, is a bit of a burden, but they are regular patrons to that theater, mm-hmm. and it's good for them to get a chance to see other artists showcase their talent. So I'm loving the direction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you're artist in residence, right, Damien? I am. I am. Yeah. yeah. How much longer? Um, 
It's uh, every year we as look long as we can keep them. Well, what I appreciate about Leslie and the company in general, they are they are kind enough to want me there, but they are generous enough to want me to spread my wings. And if something wonderful comes along, they are encouraging me to grab hold of it because it's, mm-hmm. they've definitely expressed, shown a genuine interest in my well-being, and I appreciate that. It, it, it's good to work for a company that you can feel cares about you, and uh, mm-hmm. I appreciate that. It makes it easy to show up to work. <laughs> right, right. So for our audience that's not familiar with um, the story of A Midsummer Night's Dream, perhaps you all could share the story and then and then talk about those drives, um, you know, um, to San Francisco um, that you tell us a little bit about um, in in the in the notes for the um, the program notes. Oh yeah, well Leslie, I think that's uh, that's your lane right there. You share that story and I'm just so wonderfully. <laughs> sure. It's it's actually a very easy to follow and accessible story, but when I start telling it it's gonna sound very complex. <laughs> the story starts with uh Theseus, who is um a a great hero of Greek mythology. He had many heroic and romantic adventures. He um, and and the latest his latest adventure is that he's battled against the Amazons, the fierce female warriors, and he has won the queen of the Amazon, Hippolyta, in battle. And the penalty for being bested by Theseus is she has to marry him. She's not too thrilled about this, and. Um, Theseus has been married several times before. She's a fiercely independent woman, but that's that's what happens when you get captured in battle. So Theseus is trying to tell her that may you know it's not going to be all that bad being married to me, and he says, "I wooed thee with my sword and won thy love, doing thee injury, but I will wed thee with a different key, with pomp, with triumph, and with reveling." So he's going to have a big party for their wedding. And it's and he's trying to say, it's going to be fun being married to me. So he sends the word out that he's looking for the very best entertainment for his wedding celebration a few days off. And then we meet a father named Aegeus who comes to Theseus with his daughter Hermia. And uh, Aegeus has come to ask Theseus to tell Hermia to obey him. Aegeus wants Hermia to marry Demetrius, but Hermia is in love with Lysander and wants to marry him, and Lysander loves Hermia back. Furthermore, Demetrius used to be engaged to Hermia's best friend, Helena, and he dumped her in order to try to marry Hermia. But Aegeus comes and he says to Theseus, tell my daughter she has to obey me and tell her what's going to happen if she doesn't. So Theseus shares the law of the land, which is, You either marry the man your father wants you to marry, or you can become a nun and stay a virgin for the rest of your life, or we will put you to death. Pretty pretty harsh choices there. Um, But when Theseus 
hears about Demetrius's prior relationship with Helena. He decides he needs to talk talk to him about it, and they leave Hermia and Lysander alone on stage, and they decide rather than Hermia joining a, joining a convent or being put to death that they're going to elope. And Lysander has an aunt who lives across the forest on the other side of the forest, and he says, "Let's run away tonight." And we can get married there. My aunt doesn't have any children. I'm her heir. We can have a really nice life on the other side of the forest. So that's what they decide to do. And when Hermia's best friend Helena comes in and expresses how upset she is that her fiancé has dumped her and is trying to marry her best friend, Hermia says to Helena, look, don't worry about it. You're not going to have to... You're not going to have to worry about me any longer. And she shares this secret that she and Lysander are going to elope. Well, Helena decides the best thing to do with that secret is to tell Demetrius and that maybe he'll like her more if she tells him this secret. So that night, Hermia and Lysander run off into the forest. Demetrius (laughs) runs after to try to get Hermia back. And Helena runs after Demetrius to try to get him to love her. So we have all these young people running around in what turns out to be a very magical forest because not only is this forest inhabited by fairies, but also the king and queen of the fairies have come here right now, and they are having a fight. They're having a big argument, and there's a couple parts to it. the king of the fairies, Oberon, played by Damian Brown, <laughs> accuses Titania, his wife, uh, of having had an affair with Theseus. And he says, you just came here because Theseus is getting married and you just wanted to come see what that's all about. Now remember, Oberon and Titania are immortal, which means they have been married forever and they're going to be <laughs> married forever and over the course of a long marriage you know people fight or even fairies fight uh, spouses fight so they're fighting and and theseus says you uh, oberon says you're just here to see theseus and and titania says don't tell me you know you're just jealous don't don't talk to me about it i know you just had a fling with some little shepherdess um and they <laughs> the accusations fly um Meanwhile, we also learn that Titania has a little boy, a changeling child. His mother used to be a devotee of hers, and they were very close friends. Um, This mother would um, sit with her and laugh with her and tell her stories and get her anything she wanted. But she was mortal, and she died, leaving behind this child. And Titania's taken him, and Oberon wants him. And this fight is cosmic because these are the king and queen of the fairies and when they are out of whack and out of alignment all of nature becomes out of alignment as well the roses grow um, on the god of winter and um, storms happen and the humans can't get their crops in and all of nature's out of whack so Titania leaves Oberon and says you know just stop asking me for this child and everything will be just fine. But that's not Oberon's plan. He decides instead that he's going to play a trick on, on Titania. And he has a sort of henchman fairy puck 
who does whatever Oberon asks him to do. Well, Puck is supposed to do whatever Oberon asks him, but Puck is really pretty mischievous. And he loves um, playing practical jokes on people and, and um, making, making people, um, making people slip up and fall and do things that makes him laugh. But Oberon says to him, I want, this is what I want you to do. Do you remember that time once? We were sitting on a hill looking out over the, over the ocean, and we saw the love god Cupid shoot from his bow an arrow drenched in passion, and it missed its target, and it fell instead on a little flower which used to be white and turned purple with the passion of Cupid's arrow. That flower has magical properties. If you put the juice of that flower in anyone's eyes while they're sleeping, when they wake up, the next thing they see, they'll fall madly in love with. And Oberon says to Puck, go get me that flower. I'm going to put it into Tanya's eyes. We'll make her fall in love with something else, and then I'll be able to get the child from her because she won't care about him so much. And he says, by the way, I saw all these young Athenians running around in the forest, and there was this young woman who was – so desperately in love with this young man who wouldn't give her the time of day. Go find that Athenian youth and put the love juice in his eyes too so that he'll fall in love with this young woman. And he's talking about Helena and Demetrius. Well, Puck Mm -hmm. gets the flower, finds a sleeping Athenian, but it turns out to be Lysander. So when Lysander wakes up and sees Helena, he falls in love with her, leaving Hermia behind. Oberon gets mad at Puck for screwing up, tells him to find Demetrius, <laughs> which Puck does. Puck puts the love juice in Demetrius's eyes. He wakes up and sees Helena. And now both of the young men who at the beginning of our story were in love with Hermia are now both in love with Helena, much to Hermia's dismay. Meanwhile, when the word went out that Duke Theseus was looking for the best entertainment, a group of amateur actors decided that they were going to write and, and uh, rehearse a play. And they're hoping they'll get chosen to perform at the wedding because they think if they get chosen that they'll get some money from it. Now, this is a common fallacy because nobody makes a decent living doing live theater. But uh, these amateur actors think that, that they're going to, Um, make some money and do the best play ever. They think their play is going to be so good that they don't want anybody else to steal their ideas. So they've snuck off into the forest to rehearse. And one of them, the lead actor, is named Bottom. And Puck puts a magic spell on him and turns him into something uh, fairly weird and grotesque. And that's who Titania sees when she wakes up. So Oberon's (laughs) able to get the child... Um, there, there's, there's an antidote flower which can take the love juice off of uh, infected people's eyes. Uh, eventually, the young lovers get all sorted out. Titania kind of forgives Oberon, but it's a long marriage. I'm not entirely certain that it's not going to be a little rocky moving forward as well, especially when she <laughs> figures out the tricky plate on her. Theseus has his wedding celebration. Um, the amateur actors perform a, a, a tragedy, which is the funniest thing you've ever seen. And everybody goes off for their wedding night with the fairy blessing. And that's the story of A Midsummer Night's Dream. Yeah. Ta-da. Wow, you tell it really well, Leslie. 
Yeah, you you're a really great wow. You're a great storyteller. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, yeah, that was that was very well done. <laughs> so it's so funny. So I'm there on Sunday, um, this past Sunday, and Sunday is the last day of summer, and uh, and it's windy and kind of cold. And then the next day, the first day of autumn, you know, this Monday, two days ago, is mm-hmm. like, oh my God, we're like having record heat. Um, temperature is like a heat wave, and yesterday was hot, and today I think it's going to be hot, and then it's supposed to cool down a little later on this week. It's amazing, so we think, wow, a midsummer nice dream during uh, a time of, um, you know, um, we're having a, a climate crisis <laughs> here, yeah. you know, on this planet. Um, and so anyway, yeah. I'm just thinking uh, how apropos, <laughs> you know, sort of the things we think about. Um, you know, when we're sitting there or when we're contemplating what's happening on stage and how it sort of resonates with us in our in our lives. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. And I wish there was a magic flower that could solve our current climate uh, crisis, but unfortunately there isn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's yeah. been more than a few people who have commented on the uh, – the monologue from Titania speaking to the mm-hmm. changing of the seasons and it is uh, people do feel it. Mm-hmm. People definitely see yeah. that. You know. mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, that's, that's the beauty, beauty of, of art and the beauty of theater. Um, you know, it's, it's not just a show. <laughs> it's life, right? It yeah. is. And, Especially working with Regina Evans on this show, we talked a lot about the idea of consent because all of the women in this play um, are, uh, are almost all of the women are forced to have a sexual relationship with somebody or, or, or someone's trying to force them sometimes. It doesn't always work mm-hmm. uh, with somebody who they don't want to have a relationship with. Um, and that is, um, you know, that is, that is the world that Regina lives in every day. And, um, so even in the most wonderfully silly romantic comedy, there, there are undertones of very serious things that are very contemporary. And, and that is part of the beauty of Shakespeare, the multi-layered facet and the complete, bottomless depths of of these plays. They're not just one thing. They're so rich. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, and you think about the manipulation, right? I mean, that's also, um, you know, sort of thematic in, in this work. Um, you know, we have uh, Lamar Maverick Harrison's wonderful Puck, who is doing the the work of of um, you know of his lord you know Oberon you know your character, <laughs> Damien, and um, and and then um, but it's still manipulative. It's not like um, these things are are happening you know naturally. If there is such a, such a thing as you know natural in in Shakespeare, particularly as comedies, particularly you know we're in this magical yeah. force. Um, but then we think about the spirits and, and spirits, the energy. I mean, that is, I mean, I believe that that's a real thing. You know, we do have energies that can, you know, can influence us 
you know, um, to do one thing or the other. You know, luckily, yeah. a lot of times we have choice. But if your if your dreams are being manipulated when you don't like in the ways that you can't control, then it's like, oh my goodness, you know, like you know, um, uh, Tatiana, you know, Catherine Smith, um, uh, McGlynn's, you know, wonderful queen of of the uh, the fairies, you know, Oberon's uh, consort. You know how she falls in love with an ass. Like really, like. Really? Yeah. I mean, and, her and, her and, her consorts yeah. are like, really, Queen? Like what? <laughs> <laughs> well, no one knows that what Oberon has done, and that is really my my of course my problem with the character. Oberon is a jerk for that, and um, it of course this was written in the 15th century, uh, so mm-hmm. it's you know 16th century, and and it was really. Um, kind of reflective on how the relationship, the dynamic was, the masculine and feminine. And um, it wasn't pretty. I don't think it's resolved well, <laughs> you know, especially in these days and times. And I can't help but think that um, Titania is going to definitely have her way in time in an eon of marriage. Mm-hmm. But I'm seeing things like that and listening to the story. I I am one of those people who firmly believe that we are out of whack in this, in the harmony of the universe, because I think that we are too, um, we're too one-sided with the uh, the patriarchal masculine energy. I believe that we're, mm-hmm. we've tilted past the breaking point with that. And um, mm-hmm. there needs to be a harmony. And, and that balance has not been achieved. And, I personally think that it's not enough because of how far we've gone. It's not enough to bring that into balance. I think in order to get it into the right balance, there has to be a major, a major inoculation, (laughs) you know, from that desire to just take everything to the masculine. We, We need to infuse some feminine principle in this world and heavy doses in order to get there. And it's a hard thing to to give up the changeling child, the quest for that changeling child, and just accept mm-hmm. the queen's wish to have this child with good reason. Because when you hear that mm-hmm. monologue, I mean, Titania speaks in a manner in which any decent moral ethical human beings should be able to hear, understand, and agree that, okay, this is your right, and I'll honor it. But that was not there. And that male belief system of I must have my way, I want what I want, no matter what it costs mm-hmm. you, I think that's part of the problem with this whole imbalance. And I think that the universe reflects that in, in our climate change and all of those things, but those are my thoughts. Oh, and I did want to say, Maverick Harris, mm-hmm. yeah, he, he did a great job. He had a great, you know, physicality in that presence, but we also have Jeremy Marquis playing Puck as well, and he has a, a, his okay. own style that plays mm-hmm. so beautifully throughout the production, so I think we were fortunate to be able to get both looks of Puck's nature. I think that was that was really a treat for those who were able to see both 
Yeah. So who was on Sunday? Was that Jeremy or that was or that was Maverick? Jeremy Marquis. Okay, yeah, because I was looking opens, like yeah. as I was looking, that doesn't look Maybe. like Maverick. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. Yes. Yeah, he was. Yes. Jeremy was awesome. Yeah. Oh yeah. Jeremy, okay. Jeremy's awesome. He's awesome. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm sure you'll yeah. see a lot of him in the Bay Area because uh, he is extremely talented. And he mm-hmm. catches on very, very quickly. Mhm. Oh, okay. Yeah, so, um. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Give our no, audiences no, the details about this this coming week. Um. Because this um. Are you extending or is is um the run concluding this weekend? Sadly, we are unable to extend. So please come mm-hmm. this weekend mm-hmm. to see the show. Thursday, Friday, okay. Saturday, Sunday. Yeah, 8 o'clock mm-hmm. Thursday, 8 o'clock Friday. There's a student matinee, however, 11 o'clock Friday is also 8 o'clock on Saturday and closing at 4 p.m. on Sunday. Okay. And one of, the, All right. awesome. one of the lovely things, I'm so happy with this production, um, we received for the first time a Shakespeare in American Communities grant from the National Endowment for the Arts, and that's allowed mm-hmm. us to provide transportation for hmm. um, fifteen hundred school kids to come see this show, and also offer um, a, a classroom visits from some of our actors. Damien's been into the schools, uh, some of the schools already, to talk to the kids about the play, and that's so exciting to me because a lot of the kids who are coming are kids of color, and for them to see a cast that looks like them is um, super exciting. Yes. Wow. Yes, we love all the kids showing up, but I tell you, there's a a special theme. Those East Bay youngsters uh, show up in the place, and you can see the light and feel the energy when they see that heavily melanated cast come on the stage in mass, and they just start cheering because there's just unfortunately something they don't expect to see mm-hmm. that should not be so uncommon. So right. it's good yeah. to be able to provide that. So we want to keep doing that. And I, a lot mm-hmm. of a lot of uh, thanks go to the vision of uh, Leslie, Bob Perrier, and the, the board of Marine Shakespeare Company for seeing the importance of that and moving into action to make certain that it's happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, certainly, certainly. Um, yeah, I was wondering um, sort of um, – in closing, if, if you all could talk about um, just, um, you know, those those drives that you talk about, um, you know, um, both you, um, uh, Leslie, and Damien, um, you know, sort of driving uh, together, I guess, to Stockton to share yeah. your love of Shakespeare with highly at-risk young men at two youth prisons. Um, yeah, and... Um, and, and sort of the whole idea of, of this particular um, look to A Midsummer Night's Dream, um, which I don't know, I don't know that I've ever seen this look, you know, having, you know, these uh, these characters in, um, you know, sort of robes and, and, uh, and costumes that, that call to mind, you know, the African uh, continent and the ancient... And present, you know, 
nations of of this you know this large place um, that has lots of countries and people think of it as a country mm-hmm. but it's not. Yeah. <laughs> and um, yes. yeah, yeah, and um, just sort of what that call what that brings to mind, you know, as we see, you know, um, your character um, Oberon, you know, as an African leader, right, and and his queen. Yes. Um, and and then and then we see you know um, Theseus um, you know Todd uh, Rigsby you know really you know regal c- carriage uh, of that particular character and then uh, uh, Hippolyta is that how you pronounce um, the character's name Hippolyta Hippolyta yes, right yeah Eliza yeah. Um, how do you pronounce Eliza's um, last name Boyden yeah yes I believe it's Boyden Eliza Boyden, Boyden. Weathens, uh yeah, you know, as an Amazon, you know, goddess that has been captured, and now, you know, this guy, um, you know, so what, he's a king, you know, he's my captor, he's like, I want you to marry me, <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, you have to marry me, like, there's no choice, and I'm like, you know, all this power, like, these guys just swaggering, right, these these male characters just, like, all this swag, <laughs> and, you yeah. know, and, yeah, it's like, I ask you, but really, you really don't have a choice. And yeah, so right. anyway, <laughs> to, to his yeah. credit, Theseus. To his credit, Theseus spends the entire play trying to woo Hippolyta and you know mm-hmm. convince her that he's a he's not a terrible guy and that he's going to treat her really well. <laughs> um, yeah. So, but um, th- w- this play was written in a time when. Preachers, ministers from the pulpit would encourage uh, husbands to beat their wives if they weren't um, obedient. And there was a very built-in um, sense of male domination in, in Shakespeare's world. So I think um, understanding that um, the, the culture that this play came out of helps us see similarities and differences to our world today. Mm-hmm. Yes. It's uh, back to the consent, you know, that's um, sadly something written that long ago and still see shadows of the same problem, but well, not even shadows, but full figures. <laughs> and 2019 is alarming, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's, it, yeah, it's really great, you know, um, sorry to interrupt you, Damien, but it's really great, you know, sort of how in-your-face this is and, and how it really makes us think about um, sort of these women coming forward um, to talk about um, consent and how the absence of consent has um, has ruined careers, has ruined lives, and, and, and they're not going to be silent anymore. Because this is nothing new. I mean, fifteen hundred, right? <laughs> you know, we're talking about right. this like what? Yeah. So it's really great. You know, it's it goes down lightly because it's a comedy, but it still it lingers. Like I was telling you, like I'm dreaming about the play. <laughs> yeah. Oh, great. Yes, I I I, yeah, I can't help but think about the uh, the whole move with the Spencers. If you look at the changing child as a, a, a woman's right to own land and property and through trickery mm-hmm. or legal code, it's just taken away, you know? 
these mm-hmm. things have played out too often. They've played out way too often. So, um, yeah, we have to be we have to be aware of that. So I'm never happy being Oberon. <laughs> I tell the story, but <laughs> I certainly don't mm-hmm. don't agree with Oberon's uh, moral compass. But um, it's it's good for people to see and discuss, especially young people, to see and have an opinion mm-hmm. and express where they are with that. You know, mm-hmm. and then it gives an opportunity to talk about, you know, the 1500s and, and how these things started to be built up and just dug in. So, yeah, mm-hmm. but yeah. going to get back to the uh, the trips, taking taking this same opportunity to to young people who are incarcerated in juvenile prisons, which is a shame, you know, is there are some eye-opening moments for them um, studying the works of Shakespeare as well. And there's also opportunity for them to reach deeper levels of expression from immersing themselves into the work. And um, we've seen some great moments out of these young people in doing monologues and preparing to put on a play and uh, for something that they never thought that they would really have an interest in. Mm-hmm. So um, that's always beautiful to see access is everything. And um, getting rid of that mindset that is so easy to adapt of, yes, but not for me. Mm-hmm. We really want to get rid of that because this planet is theirs as much as it is anyone else who may feel themselves to be at the top of the food chain. You know, the planet doesn't belong any more to them than it does those who are considered by others to be at the bottom of it. So mm-hmm. we want to arm them with that understanding. And um, so it's been good, and it's getting better. Would you say okay. so, Leslie, from your experience? Um, it's really heartbreaking. The, the young men, they're all... Um, about 16 or 17 to 24 years old and these young men who get incarcerated and who grow up in cells and um, they're they're some of the most highly traumatized young men from our communities and it's heartbreaking seeing them um, locked in, in prisons and although the prison does a, a pretty good job of providing educational opportunities for these kids that these these facilities need more they need more arts programs they need more vocational programs they need more um, uh, mental health services for these for these young men if we want them to succeed when they get out of these of these prisons these youth prisons two words that should never go together. So I think um, the work that Damon and I are doing, we, we see that we're getting through to some of these young men with our message, which is you can do something that you never thought you could do. You are smart. You are creative. You can make different choices. Just like actors get to make different choices on stage, you can make different choices in your life. And mm-hmm. you have a great future ahead of you if if you pursue it. And right. 
you know, Damien is such an, inc- an a, a, astonishing mentor to these young men um, because he spent so much time incarcerated himself. When he says, you don't want to do what I did, you don't want to spend decades of your life in prison, that carries a lot of weight with, with these young men. And Damien has some pretty simple messages. The, you know, if you hang out with um, people who are on a wrong path, you're going you're gonna to end up on a wrong path too. If you hang out with people who are on a right path, you're going to succeed and you're going you're gonna to be able to get onto that path. You know? And some pretty simple messages about don't let someone else control your life. Don't let some gang uh, leader tell you what to do. Can you take autonomy for your own life and your own decisions? You're your own man. Some other lessons like that, and, and when Damien speaks, these young men listen, and and then we get them to do Shakespeare monologues and scenes, and 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 they just are doing something they never thought they could imagine doing, and we hope that then that that they that makes them see that they can do other things that they could never imagine doing. So the work is great. We hate driving to Stockton, but it does give us a lot of time to talk about <laughs> things like um, how we want to put on plays and um, what other programs we might we might um, start and what other projects we might do. So it's yeah. it's great having that time together to plan and think. And scheme. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, that's so awesome. Yeah. And I want to let the audience know that, um, uh, let's see, that you, um, uh, see, the shows are Thursday, September 26th, 8 o'clock, um, Friday, September 27th, uh, 